Boom, it's Stuart again. Yes, I am hijacking every individual feed now. <laughs> well, all the ones that's happening before the 20th of October. <laughs> What's happening on the 20th of October? Extra Life, bitches. Yes, my third annual Extra Life Marathon. 24 hours of video games, r- raising money for the sick kids in Edinburgh. Uh, Ken's here, I may as well let him talk. Hello, hello. <laughs> and I, I will say, be here for a long, long, long time for the remainder of the episode too. So, mm-hmm. so I'm just here to just, just to fucking get going, to wake you all up, and and just babble on fucking mindlessly. Games, man. How affected have you been since you and I last spoke? In terms of you said, like, I've probably gonna buy one game this fall but like that's been like four or five days so uh, have you gone through a crisis during the last four or five days uh, so like, uh, maybe i can get two or one and a half yes i have been looking at games to purchase as i have a uh, properly finished assassin's creed one and two now i complete all the tombs in assassin's creed 2 without losing my temper or throwing the control pad out the window again uh, you and... should never get a move or a Wii because that yes. was that 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 that's a genuine projectile. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> especially when it was like the connect, you had nothing to throw apart from yourself <laughs> or kick the connect. Aye, aye. So uh, I finished those and I've started getting back into Dead Space Two, getting a hold of the control system again. Like you, you always have that blind terror with horror games, where you're you've figured out you know how to walk and run, but you're not quite sure how to fire your gun yet. And then of course all these beasts start mm. coming out the walls, coming out the air vents. When you go to fire, you're just rotating and reloading, and you're like no, no, no. It's so a, it's a bit of a strategy game that I have it and I have played it. Uh, love loved the first, second was quite alright uh, uh, as well. Just the experience wasn't as fresh anymore but that's due to the mm-hmm. first one being really awesome and um and, and and you're thrown into it literally into so Aye, uh, and uh, it's a strange change as in the very first game there's literally no talking whatsoever this one the guy doesn't seem to shut up mm-hmm. yeah exactly they they so, um, yeah yeah that, that that was okay but uh that was a change they Right. And has this one got multiplayer as well? Yeah, uh, uh, multiplayer that didn't get it. Unnecessary multiplayer. Yeah, I mean, the concept was great that you could play as necromorphs and shit like that, but it didn't get any good uh, remarks that multiplayer. No one is playing it, literally. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it was kind of something you have to do, but it was not something they developed and for for very long. Just inserted it and uh, that's it. But, it, you know, it, it's, it's not a game that hinges on its multiplayer. Uh, multiplayer campaign. It's it's a game that hinges on its single player campaign. Third mm-hmm. one will be co-op. I heard. That's yes, ah, that's a new thing, which is not too bad. Uh, that's of interest. It's due out February next year as well, so it's not caught in the whole October November uh, rape of bank <laughs> accounts. <laughs> yes, monetary rape. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, I thought with, obviously I will get through Dead Space 2, but in preparation for Extra Life, I've bought myself a second-hand copy of Borderlands. Oh, yeah, okay. I think that will be the the main game of the day. 
Mm-hmm. Just getting, just trying to get finished those giant, giant gains. So, yeah, that is my basic train of thought so far. I have yeah. got a bunch and, of. And you're my... like, uh, I started to set up with wait too many games just to overcompensate and know that you are covered for the day. Aye, I'm like that just before I tend to rent half a dozen games and mm. borrow what I can and so I just have all the stuff set aside and then just find one that fits and I just stick with that for most of the day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, yes, I'm... Um, and some creative energy drinks as well. I get some, like, oh, nuclear yes. bombs rapid or something. Like yes, I, I remember buying a, a jar of rocket fuel. Yeah. That was coffee. <laughs> coffee that tastes Re- like ass. Yeah, I was about to say uh, there must be a a drink called something ass. You know, mm-hmm. shit out your ass <laughs> with sugar. <laughs> <laughs> coffee. Like, I'll drink that. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure shit and sugar out your ass by the time you've had a six pack of them. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've I've forwarded a few film not films. I've got some games at the top of my rental list, so I'm hoping to uh, have another quick playthrough of Assassin's Creed uh, Brotherhoods, technically Assassin's Creed 3. And last year, I was playing Fallout New Vegas. This year, I'm trying to get back again so I could play more. <laughs> uh, no, I do actually still have a copy of that, Fallout uh... 3 lying around, but yeah. I've completed that like four times now. <laughs> I don't need to complete it anymore. It's literally 100% complete, or you don't know that? Uh, well, achievement-wise. Hmm. Like, I've gotten that and all the achievements on all the download content. So I've got that game properly maxed out. Whereas Fallout New Vegas, they released the Ultimate Edition. Where it's, it's like a waiting game. If you buy it like on release, you know in a year's time it will be released again. And all this download content will be on like a second disc. Yep. So part of you is like, right just wait till next year which is antagonistic just like unbearable at times (laughs) I think I was blessed in the sense I got married and I realised I needed money so I've sold all my games so I know now if I want to go back to them I just wait a few more months and they happen to be re-released as Ultimate Edition or Special Edition or Game of the Year Edition they've always got a wee title just to repackage it and get more money out of you. Yep. Well, because it's a sensible choice, really. Aye. Like, Skyrim looks like it's on that path. I've not completed Skyrim yet, but I've noticed they have two download packs out already. Mm. Like, one new campaign, and another one that's given you a option to make your own house and adopt <laughs> children. <laughs> that is the basics I know of that. I think there, there could be storylines involved. But adopt children and build houses. Like uh, Minecraft-esque. Right. In the sense you're getting to collect all the blocks you need to build a home. <laughs> and then you get to just make your mansion in the woods. Well, that's the thing I, I wanted to figure out. Was like, Where exactly do you get to build your mansion? Like, Could I go to the top of the mountain where I've killed all the dragons and then just plonk a little cottage at the top? <laughs> get a little vegetable patch going? Or do you buy land? Like... How real do they make these games? Do I have to get like a lawyer and then go for a waiting process, get on a housing list? Answer is of course yes. They've done that. <laughs> like, are That's you exactly. suffering abuse from dragons, elves, orcs, 
tech box, please provide proof. <laughs> so maybe thinking a little too hard into that, but like Skyrim, damn it, that is still such an awesome game. I might have to just try and rent that and just finish it. Mm. Like that was a game where you could sort of just put down the controller and look at the surroundings and like let the music play in the background and you're just looking at like a giant forest with a stream and the sound of birds and mm. birds being chased by dragons. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just such a beautifully well done game. And if you play on easy, you get to knock things out with your bare fists. <laughs> like At the, the beginning of the game, you come across giants. And the giants, of course, clearly huge, huge creatures come running at you, strike you with a club, and you practically bounce off the earth and just rocket off into the sky, which I think was a weird glitch, but it just had this kind of effect. And like, well, if you did get hit, if it was like a giant with a baseball bat, and he hit you, I'm pretty sure you would fly. Mm. You would pretty much take off. But now when you're on easy, you could just like let the giant run up to you and then sucker punch it. And then yes. just sit and punch fuck it whilst it's on the ground trying to recover and stand back up. Well, then he's it, like, I, a have, I have this power! <laughs> and you just run into a camp of ar- archers and just do big dragon punches and send them off. It's fun. <laughs> It is but a fantasy world, after right, all. That's what it's all about. You've got to have fun with your games. Yeah. Like, somebody tells you, and like, I need you to go find fucking my five lost sheep. And say, like, why don't I punch you and take my reward money now? <laughs> and then a guard might witness it. And says, right now, I have to kill the witnesses. So, you know, you're, you're, you're that kind of player. Uh, you go for the uh, I no, will no hide morale. The yeah. <laughs> there is times where I've dragged the body to a stream. And just let it fly away. Oh, I, was... <laughs> I hope you're not because, this mean in real life, know, man. <laughs> funny Skyrim stories. There's times where, if you like, there there is these random awesome occasions where you could fast travel from one village to another. And when you show up, the village is already under attack from a dragon, and it's like shit's on. You need to get ready, get get your sword out or get bows. And once you kill the dragon, the, the body drops turns into a skeleton and all the villagers sort of surround it and just talk saying oh that was a close one and just <laughs> all that stupid like NPC shit and there's this time where it happened the body landed on a bridge so all the people lined up on this bridge and started talking I'm on the land across from the bridge and I have the ability to do a big air like a big dragon ball punch like through the air huh. so it was like almost like bowling I had the bowling ball on the bridge was my skittles. <laughs> it's just like I saved the game, and then I took like ten people out with one move, <laughs> and of course all the guards went mental. But it was awesome. It just had to be done. <laughs> Women and children flying off in all directions. Some landed in the ocean. Some landed on rocks. Ah, <sighs> so yes. Uh, now I want to play Skyrim. <laughs> <laughs> well, provide us with the deets again, and. Uh... We yes. can go get on with the podcast, and you can get on with Skyrim. The thing, yes. Uh, if you want to support me in my battle of twenty-four hour video gaming and raising money for sick kids, of course, uh, go to tinyurl.com forward slash xlstu. So that is x l s t o o. 
that will take you right to my Extra Life fundraising page. Uh, the goal is $100, and basically I'm saying for every pound donated, I will give back an hour of podcasting. Pounds equal podcasts, essentially. Mm-hmm. And if you really want to take part in this as well, uh, hit, hit me up on Facebook, go onto our Podcast on Fire group, and just tag me in a message, and we could arrange it. Because I think this year we're actually going earlier. Like the, the thing when you do play from 8 a.m. through to 8 a.m. the next day, your next day is pretty much gone because you're having to sleep. Mm. So I think this year we're going for a 5 a.m. start time. Oh, okay, okay. And then, so we're finished for 5 a.m. on the Sunday. And then in that sense, I could then sleep till 10 o'clock and still have a decent five hours and then still have a day. All right. So. Sounds reasonable. Plus, it'll be more refreshing getting up early and getting to go to bed early, even mm-hmm. though it's still the exact same amount of time. Yeah. But, yes, looking forward to it. It's always a great time of year. Uh, <laughs> it's also like a great mental battle amongst friends. Like trying to talk to each other, knowing your friends slurring on the other side, <laughs> like their tanks running out of gas, yeah. and like then comes in the variable fucking battling back and forth with <laughs> each other up. Who will who will remain the sharpest? Yeah, yes, I can see that. The, well, well, you're just an asshole who's a fucking dick, right? Yeah. Yes. Fucking kill stealing cunt. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so, yes. Um, on that note. <laughs> on that note, Japan on fire. Yes, sir. Welcome to Japan on Fire 6-3, the complicated numbers that we're sticking with, but uh, that's where it is, and this is the third part in the Mamoru Oshi coverage that we've been doing. And tonight it's Stray Dog, Kerberos, Panzer Corps, and Jinro, the Wolf Brigade, and I'm Kennedy. And we are sticking to a tradition established in episode 2 of our coverage of Oshi's movies as we mix live action and anime. In part two, it was the Red Spectacles and Pat Labor, the movie. But we're breaking tradition because the two movies we're covering tonight both belong to the Kerberos saga. We are finishing off the feature movies connected to the Kerberos saga tonight. And uh, as I said, the, cov- the coverage and spotlight is for Stray Dog and the Oshi scripted anime, Gene Rowe, The Wolf Brigade. He directed Stray Dog, but only scripted, wrote the... Uh, a anime gene row and with me enduring stuff he's usually not into uh, it's uh, animes public enemy number one which is v cinema's coffin john <laughs> well thanks for having me on the show once again camp i, I don't know if ex- i'm exactly uh anime's public enemy number one I'm, I'm sure there are plenty of other people who uh who uh don't have as much interest in anime and i know there are pl- plenty that who really hate anime but uh, i'm definitely I would say anime's 
more curious soul number one. Oh, How about that? That, that sounded <laughs> rather sweet, actually. Oh, that's so lovable. I'd rather, I'd rather not say that I, I dislike anime more that I'm not educated in it and that I'm trying to bring whatever uh, knowledge of film and Japan that I have to the table to uh, be able to talk about anime, to learn a little bit more. I still like anime's public enemy number one. It sounds funnier. Okay. Well, yeah, it's less words, right? <laughs> exactly. And that's what I do. That's what I'm best at. Let's... So some brief contact information before we launch our discussion of these two movies. And this is Japan on Fire on the Podcast on Fire Network. The website with this and about seven other shows. As I say on every show now, I officially lost count. Because uh, we debuted a new show at the time of recording fairly recently, and uh, I, I think it's seven, possibly eight. But uh, the website for that is podcastonfire.com. If you want to contact us by email, it's podcastonfire at googlemail.com. We have the message forum at podcastonfire.com forward slash forum, which is closed currently and probably for a long while for, uh, for new members who wish to register because we had problems with spam and uh, needed to clear out for the forum that way but uh, the discussion has moved o- over to facebook really so that that's fine but if you registered before you still have access to our members only archive of extra content from past shows uh, outtakes uh, silly shenanigans and uh, and exclusive uh, long content but that uh, exclusive content whenever we do have it we post that in the bonus episodes section of the website and that is extra podcasts bonus episodes that will not be available on itunes or stitcher you can only download them from podcastonfire.com so check out the bonus episode section and we did one for the first episode in this oshi coverage for the australian sci-fi movie in the aftermath that mixed up a footage from Angel's Egg and their own live-action footage. So um, there's, uh, there's extra stuff connected to this series as well. Quite fun, that episode was. Yeah, yeah I, like, I, I, I liked it as an episode, not necessarily um, as we discussed as... Um, you know, as a, as a movie. You know, movies were all crap, but, right. uh, but it was a... You know, no one really asked for that coverage, but I was glad to be doing that coverage, you know. Sure. Uh, and... Uh, you know, as long as it amuses the creator, so to say, first and foremost, and it shows in the episode, I think that can travel uh, a little bit. And uh, yeah, I re-listened to it recently. It's, uh, it's good fun. It's uh, definitely good fun to have perspective on it uh, because it was a few months ago. And I uh, just thought it was cool. Like, uh, they didn't do that. Oh, yeah, they did. <laughs> they, they did waste time on that. So God bless them, kind of. So. Um, as I said, we're on Facebook. Uh, our page is facebook.com forward slash POF network. And uh, the main, you can interact with us there, but the main discussion goes on in the discussion group. And you'll reach that by typing in podcast on fire network in the Facebook search box. And you have to request to be added. And as soon as I see that, I usually approve you. There's no long process to, to, to get approved to join us. Uh, so... That's all good fun. And follow us and uh, Stu's exploits, of course, on twitter.com forward slash podcast on fire. Uh, follow Stu's um, viewing ha- uh, US TV viewing habits. Uh, you, you see that on his uh, <laughs> Twitter because I think he, he, he does watch a lot of Breaking Bad and what have you while projecting movies at the cinema he works at. So um, it's, a good, uh, it's a good time uh, wasted to have, um, to have Netflix. I think he has Netflix on his phone. If he doesn't have his laptop in the projection booth, then, then he watches like Breaking Bad and things like that on his phone. 
which is uh, something we don't have over here in Sweden. I'm kind of jealous. Uh, still waiting for that stuff. But uh, I have. You don't a... have any kind of streaming service over there yet. Uh, not on any devices, actually. We we do oh. have a Love Film, uh, but they're on stream via via the website. You can't get right, that on right. your PS3 or Xbox or anything like that. So uh, it's a bit of a shame, actually. But um, it's not like I don't have anything to do. <laughs> you know, so well, it's a good it's a good chance to uh, put together a media PC, so you can you know just hook it up to your TV. Well, I do have that, so I mean, it's not uh, entirely um, entirely impractical uh, right. solutions, sure. but um, uh, still, w- would be kind of cool to have it uh, via my PS3. But uh, sure. alas, no at the moment. So we'll see what see what happens there. Uh, I do my writing and video reviewing, quick video reviewing on SoGoodReviews.com and SleazyKVideo.com, respectively where you won't find any reviews of Oshisa oh, movies, but rather Category 3 movies, uh, Ninja, Cut and Paste movies, uh, Taiwan, New Wave of the 70s and 80s, cool Hong Kong horror, just cool stuff I want to highlight. It's a busy plate, but uh, still more, let's say, um, more focused than it ever was. Uh, I, I, I kind of decided that it's part of Hong Kong and part of Taiwan that I really want to cover, cover rather than try and cover almost all of it uh, like I did before and um, and category 3 definitely has taken a, a step back in that regard to now it's part of that mix and uh, I'm, I'm so in love with Taiwan right now so it's a uh, it's a lot of that and a lot of IFD that in itself connects to Taiwanese cinema and follow me on Twitter as well twitter.com forward slash so good reviews and you can subscribe to the podcast on Fire Network on iTunes. And if you like the show, we would very much appreciate the rating and a comment if you have the time. And uh, you can also stream us if you prefer your podcasts uh, delivered that way via Stitcher. Stitcher.com is where you can find the application you can download to your computer. And it is available for the various smartphones and tablets as well. And you can find us by searching podcast on fire network uh, once you're in the stitcher program and you can add each show individually after that and it's time to talk a little bit about v cinema again uh, john i mean uh, there's always let's say one new listener so in general speak of uh, what, what what is v cinema what's right. going on currently at the time of recording anyway right so for that one new listener Joe, I'll call you. Um, <laughs> v Cinema, uh, much like uh, Podcast on Fire, is a multimedia Asian film Ooh. website. Um, we also do podcasts and uh, we do uh, reviews and features and interviews as well um, on our blog, which is located at vcinemashow.com. And uh, we, our podcast is also, of course, can you can download it on our site, and you can also download it on iTunes as well as Stitcher Radio and Slapdash Radio, which is uh, somewhat like iTunes. It's a basically a podcatcher. So um, yeah, so in that aspect, uh, you you can uh, definitely uh, check out our uh, site if you're into podcast on fire or if you're just into Asian cinema in general. Uh, we take the perspective of basically covering, uh, trying to cover all the countries in in Asia as well as all the genres. So we don't uh, lean on just the uh, just the um, action and. Uh, and exploitation stuff. Uh, we also look at uh, the kind of middle brow stuff, as well as uh, commercial film in Asia, art film, etc. So uh, I think we have a pretty decent perspective, even though you know, admittedly, we do kind of gear it towards a more Western audience. So we don't necessarily cover everything that comes out of the region. 
mm-hmm. who would be able to really yeah, exactly. <laughs> Asia is a large large region but we do cover I, I think we do cover areas that are really kind of ignored such as the uh, Pacific Rim region as well as uh, areas like Australia New Zealand that are sort of you know they're not really Asia but they, they are by region actually considered Asia mm-hmm. um, so so if you are um, somehow you want to get into those kinds of films uh, films from those areas uh, check out our site V Cinema Show S-H-O-W dot com. And anything in particular um, you want to mention at the time of recording that this has been hot and interesting about V-Cinema, V-Cinema the podcast or the uh, website contents? Right. Well, as far as the podcast goes, we just recorded. And, you know, by the time this podcast that you're listening to that comes out, it'll probably, I'm pretty sure it'll already been released. Uh, we recorded an episode uh, covering uh, Choi Hark's uh, Green Snake. Mm. Um, Sexy and, time at the V Cinema, right? <laughs> yeah, a little Maggie Chung action. You know, that's always does a does a man good. Um, mm-hmm. We will also probably have also released. Uh, we haven't recorded yet, as again as of us, you and me, Kenneth, recording this episode of yours. Uh, we're recording an episode in which, um, which was a episode that a uh, we had our third anniversary back in uh, late January. And one of the winners of the contest that we had for that anniversary, um, you know, we uh, basically let him, I guess you could say, pick or curate an episode. Yeah. And he chose uh, Seijun Suzuki's Tokyo Drifter. So uh, that should be out by the time uh, people actually hear this episode. Um, as well, we are um, running interviews with a bunch of filmmakers that uh, a lot of the uh, V Cinema writers have been able to track down. Um, I have one writer out here in San Francisco who uh, has interviewed a uh, filmmaker out of the Philippines. Um, that should be up uh, as well. Um, a lot of the writers that I have out in the East Coast are uh, basically enjoying uh, the New York Asian Film Festival as we speak and by this time should have some sort of uh, podcast-type coverage up. Uh, For sure, though, uh, there is coverage of the New York Asian Film Festival as well as the Japan Cuts uh, Festival, both of which are probably the largest uh, film festivals here in North America that are dedicated to Asian and uh, Japanese films specifically um, and uh, respectively. Uh, So... If you are interested in checking out the latest of film, as well as, you know, there's some older stuff mixed in there, of course. You know, film festivals always have retrospectives. But if you're interested in checking out the latest in Asian film that is uh, coming through the Western uh, festivals, then, you know, check out our coverage of those two festivals. Because, again, those are the uh, premier um, film fest- uh, Asian and uh, Japanese film festivals in North America. So uh, they are basically running all the films that you'll eventually be seeing in theaters in your own area uh, that is provided you are in uh, North America. But I'm sure that has to go for Europe, too. You know? Yeah, yeah. eventually some stuff uh, reaches us as well. Not necessarily my uh, my part of Sweden. It's li- living in a small town there for specialized sure. uh, movies only playing in the big cities, uh, if at all. But... Um... I was about to say, our very own uh, King Who uh, was uh, again at the New York Asian Film Festival, living in yes, New York yes. and all, and uh, and uh, met uh, again, I think he's met him before, uh, director Pang Ho Jung, 
because they screened uh, Bulgaria. His uh, right. one of his latest his movies. Latest. Uh, yeah, he has tons of movies going on at the at 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 the same time it seems. But uh, this is one of them, and he met uh, Pang Won Chung again. And I think I saw a picture of him with uh, Korean actor Choi Min Sik. And right. uh, but the way he posted about that very fact, he wasn't very excited. You know, uh, he has a Korean actor. Uh, Hong Kong cinema is still the best. Right. In a joking way, though. In a joking way. And King Hu is not the biggest fan of Korean film. I mean, it's it's kind of funny, but he he'll still watch the films. But you know, just like everyone else, I'm sure you know. He, I think he has a problem with the length. You know, well, so. well, well, I, well, I do as well. So, but so, so I, I I watch only sparsely, but I I don't carry any joking grudge or or or, <laughs> or joking hate or real for that matter. So, uh, right. so life life is too short to hate on movies. Right. But uh, but who knows uh, when we uh, now start to do, to discuss these two movies? Who knows if uh, there will be we, we we via this coverage rather the Oshi coverage? Maybe we are building up hate that we don't even know about. You and I like these movies are so indulgent. Oshi's movies are so indulgent, and at the last episode it all blows up. <laughs> right. But uh, we'll see what happens there. So that neatly, neatly, Robert, leads us into the discussion and review and background of the first movie tonight, and that is 1991's Stray Dog Cadabaros Panzer Cops, written and directed by Mamoru Oshii. And it's, uh, as I said, this is part of the Cadabaros saga that we've covered and discussed via the Red Spectacles, and, and to a certain extent in episode one as well. And, and stuff is getting kind of complicated now in terms of speaking of the storyline arc how things are working uh, uh, but uh, we we won't it's kind of the last discussion of this series of the Kelbera saga because uh, after this episode we have covered the movies portion of the of the saga they they it, uh, there were no feature movies after this so to explain now that we have all three movies on the plate this is apparently how it worked the timeline stray dog is set before the Red Spectacles that we reviewed in the last episode. It's a prequel. However, it's set after Gene Rowe, The Wolf Brigade, making it a sequel if you look at the timeline only. And I say that because if you watch Gene Rowe, it's very much a standalone movie. It doesn't attempt to connect to Stray Dog as firmly as The Red Spectacles uh, does. So it's very... It's very standalone. So the order, therefore, is Jinro, Stray Dog, and the Red Spectacles. But when you say standalone, I mean definitely it's set in the same world. Though. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But they they don't connect events and the characters sure. like Stray Dog right. and Red Spectacles do. So, uh, right. uh, but but you're very right. It's uh, it's set um, about twenty thirty years earlier than the events in um, in Stray Dog and Red Spectacles. I think they uh, Oshi places the events of uh, Stray Dog and Red Spectacles in late 80s, early 90s, uh, essentially when the movies, uh, uh, not when the movies were made, but I think I read a, a, a subtitle where it says it's uh, 80s, 90s uh, timeline, and Gene Rowe is 60s, I think, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I would say probably 50s, 60s, because uh, that film has some references to things that were going on around that time. Um you know, most uh, notably uh, the scenes in which there's uh, rioting, or not rioting, but uh, protesting demonstrations, uh, you know, which were part of the uh, 
the anti Anpo uh, movement uh, in in Japan, which we'll, I can get into a little later. Mm-hmm. And after the after the movies, uh, to an extent, the mangas take over, but. Uh, Having said all that, Stray Dog is actually an adaptation and story extension from one of the uh, mangas called Calibero's Panzer Cop Volume 1. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it focuses on, the in that volume, the focus is on the character of Inui. And uh, he is... Uh, gi- no... <sighs> So goddamn hard to explain, but he's given a, a unique chapter and development in movie form here. So it, it, ex, it uh, if I did my research right, it seems to extend on what was kind of started in one of the mangas, and uh, that run, that Caribbean's Panzer Cop run, lasted between 1988 and 2000. So it uh, was one of the the centerpieces, the key centerpieces of uh, this whole Caribbean saga, which is incredibly complex. So I shouldn't try and make too much sense of it and just focus on the movies, the movies, the movies, because it's uh, I mean, good on you, uh, Carabaros uh, enthusiasts if you can keep track of all of this uh, it, it's a commitment, uh, I would gather Right, well we are talking about two movies or I should say, not even two movies but we're talking about three movies, two of which are set in the same timeline, but one which is, you know definitely as you said very much separated from it so mm-hmm. you know it's not as uh continuous of a world or a series as you might want to or as you might expect right? exactly and on that note actually wikipedia described Kerberos Panzerkop uh, manga as more of an anthology of and vignettes depicting incidents which contribute to uh, to that overall tale of the of the battles between the anti-government urban guerrilla organizations such as the sect and the metropolitan police's special armed garrison nickname Carbero. So it's a uh, more of a gen. There are little stories in uh, you know set in set in as part of the whole kind of uh, rather than being part one, two, three, four, five, and and rather than it being a soap, let's say, or or, or a full story, they are little uh, snapshots of uh, what's going on overall, which which sounds like it, uh, maybe it's not super hard to follow in that regard. Uh, You can dip your toe a little bit into the saga every now and again via the mangas and then still... uh, and still be kind of on point. If, um, but um, as I said, I, I haven't um, read uh, read any of the stuff. I've just watched the movies. So, mm-hmm. uh, the Red Spectacle was actually taken to comic book form too uh, after the movie. Uh, how coherent it was, I'm not sure. I didn't find any essential uh, view or review of it. <laughs> uh, I would be curious to find out how it in manga form played out compared to the uh, messy movie as we described in episode 2 but uh, that's uh, that's uh, possibly info that we'll uh, we'll catch uh, at a later point uh, as I said there are different story arcs to follow really with the majority of the stories being set in the Kerberos story arc but you also have something called the Tachi Gushi or Goi Goi John, pronounce, pronounce that for me. Tachi. Uh, uh, ta- tachigushi, which is like, uh, this, like standing while you're eating. 
Yeah. yeah, exactly. That's the name of that story arc. And it was actually featured in the animated movie Tachi Goi, The Amazing Lives of the Fast Food Grifters. Yeah. <laughs> Amazing title that uh, O'Shea co-directed. It's uh, described as a documentary style animation film created with the technique named Super Livemation which uh, Oshi first experimented with in Avalon. It's this flat 3D technique, essentially. Oh, okay, right. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was used as a visual effect for explosions in uh, Ash's game in Avalon. Uh, she plugs into a game, uh, um, not a Matrix as such, but, but a game in Avalon. So uh, I remember they were very pasted on those kind of explosions, those effects, and clearly they were, they, they were meant to be not super integrated into the action they were meant to be uh, uh, to to kind of emulate and to uh, remind you of the fact that uh, she's playing a game a computer game in that in that in that movie so are we not going to cover that film the Tachiguishi uh, film i mean uh, it's uh, it's such a great title so uh, i think uh, at some point we perhaps uh, have to and therefore the carrier story uh, story coverage isn't though, but uh, uh, it's um, I haven't uh, looked into it too much actually. But uh, Avalon definitely and the amazing lives of the fast food grifters is um, you know we we have the opportunity we might, might as well exploit it as well. So uh. yeah, I mean I, I would like to just because I would say um, you know that that element of the story doesn't appear in the either of the two films that we're talking to talk about today. I think mm -hmm. there's only like a passing reference possibly in Stray Dog, if I remember correctly. But but it's in uh, Red Spectacles, and I thought that part sort of stood out to me the most because it was kind of unexplained in the film, and mm -hmm. I, I kind of wanted to know a little bit more about it, uh, about, you know, what these Tachiguishi people are and, you know, what, what what's involved with that exactly. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, um, in Red Spectacles, it just comes off as being kind of like uh, like much like the rest of the film sort of goofy you know mm -hmm. it's like okay it's these people who can eat for free while they're standing up it's like what you know and it's not really well explained so it, it might be nice if we could get our hands on that film that's dedicated to um that element of the entire uh um Kerberos um saga to sort of look into that and see how it fits in the overall uh series. Absolutely. And uh hopefully it's appeared uh, subtitled somewhere I've officially or unofficially. Yeah. Uh, I've looked into that. And uh but but on but on that note of super li uh, limation, uh Oshi continued to play around with it and develop it uh, even in those mini pato short films that he did that um connected to Pat Labour actually. Um he, he did a kind of a short film series involving involving the Pat Labour franchise. And uh, it was also in, um, I've only written here, Robert Sloppley, it was also used in the PlayStation Portable game. I think that's still a reference to Mini Pato and, uh, and possibly Pat Labour. It was a, a PSP game from uh, six, seven, eight years ago. Right. Uh, and, and to explain a little bit, uh, you, you touched upon it, but uh, to explain a little bit about what these Tachigoi professionals are, one of the privileges is, as you said, to, it sounds goofy, it, it's a privilege to eat in stand and eat street restaurants without paying. Uh, in Red Spectacles, these kind of, um, these kind of restaurants are banned. So you have to go to the underground to to even to even find one, and uh, I think right. what that prolonged discussion Shigeru Shiba had with uh, the older gentleman is uh, 
possibly one such uh, tachigui professional, if you will. Right. But, uh, who, but and I knows? should mention actually that this is something that's it's not something that's just made up for the story. Um, I think that uh, people who maybe haven't been to Japan don't know that you know there are these real kind of uh, it, they're called tachigui restaurants where you know you go let's say you know like you're like let's say you're um, uh, you know just getting off the train you know on the way home and then you know you just want to get a bite to eat so you just run into one of these restaurants it's a standing counter you know you get a bowl of noodles or whatever you know just mm-hmm. eat it down and then you know you're finished and you go home so it's a, it's a really quick I think that's what the reference is to fast food I don't think it's meant to be like McDonald's or anything but it's just no, a no. very for the consumer something that they can easily just go in there you know eat without having to you know sit down and look at the menu and all that stuff all the niceties of restaurants but basically like basically a hit and run as far as getting a meal goes you know just get in there eat get out and then go about your way and uh, he he describes these characters in in, uh, in the movie uh, in uh, the amazing uh, the amazing lives of the fast food grifters as quote glorified maverick heroes who have carved their names in the history of dietary culture sometimes accused of destroying the public order or simply dismissed of being pure fiction see that's why I want to know about this it's because uh, this element of the story you know because. You know, this thing is based on real life, but when you think of it in real life, you know, Tachigui, like I said, it's it's so, like, un, unglamorous, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like you're just going to these places just to get a quick bite to eat and run about your way, right? Uh, so I'm just why, you know, it, within this storyline, you know, what what exactly does that mean, you know? And and, I mean, and, and their names apparently are connected to a specific dinner as well. Uh, uh, right. The names of the professionals, according to the description here. And and, and, and I agree, you, you kind of get curious about what the intention there is, what the train of thoughts are coming from Ocean. And, and I like the fact that, you know, without, again, knowing anything about the movie, I, I like the thought of experimentation and evolvement your way you're staring at your way you're following maybe whimses to a certain to a certain extent trying out how can i make this part of the whole saga if you if can i and uh, will it be funny will it be uh, sad will it be violent will it be good or bad you know it doesn't seem like it was something he injected or she if we go by the, by the assumption that this was his idea his conception it, it wasn't something that um killed off Kerberos saga or anything so it was right. just part of one of the many snapshots of things within it I guess uh, but yeah I agree uh, uh, it's uh, it's something to uh, it's something to pursue to see to see what it is and uh, see if uh, right. see if it see if it uh, is fun at all as a technical experiment too um, but that's that and I am going to read off the plot it's a rather big plot but um Bear with me. It, it kind of is needed uh, to to set it up uh, in somewhat of an adequate way. So, and uh, this is for stray dog Kerberos Pansikovs, of course. The film begins with the last stand of the Kerberos unit during the Kerberos riot, which is a key part of the saga, which we've been getting glimpses of in the Red Spectacle and 
also we're getting uh, glimpses of it in, in this, in the beginning of this movie. Uh, after disobeying an order to disarm and disband, a power amplifier system issues order for a final stand and for the character of Koichi Todome, which is again, as in the first movie, played by otherwise voice actor artist in anime uh, Shigeru, Shigeru Shiba. Uh, his character is ordered, the uh, character of Midori Washio and Soichiro Toribe, they are ordered to come to the central building, out of hiding, and to the central building. And we see the introduction of a new character, a new Kerberos named Inoi, played by Yoshikatsu Fujiki, Fujiki, also a voice actor, Japan, a voice actor in Japan, and rather... You know, it's it's deserves to be said, even though this is no new information, that this is a rather respectful profession in in Japan. And uh, boy, is that man tall! <laughs> yeah. So uh, this character he won- should be on the Japan national basketball team. Oh shit! Yes, <laughs> and 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 they managed to structure comedy around this, obviously, because uh, Shiba is uh, not as tall, but who is really? Uh, this character wanders through the halls of the Carreras headquarters and witnesses Officer Kuichi Todome boarding a, a helicopter. And angry, he feels betrayed by his master and asks why he's running away and not fighting until the end, like he has ordered his uh, men prior. And then we cut to three years later. Inoue is released from prison and leaves Japan on parole. His contact from the mysterious fugitive support group reported that Todome was exiled in Taipei, Taiwan, and that's where the movie is mainly set. And it is he goes there, you know, he goes there, and it is later revealed that his release was engineered by the public security force, and that his contact Hayashi is actually an agent of this intelligence service looking for Koichi, the exiled Koichi. Who uh, and Koichi actually escaped once with the intention of creating a new Kerberos organization after leaving his old behind, uh, creating that abroad and uh, returning to Tokyo once strong, I guess. And you know, he picks up on the trail uh, of Koichi, and uh, after finding Tang Tangmie, a teenage Taiwanese girl that Todome Todome has been involved with, uh, they go on a, um, a road trip together to try and find Koichi Todome again. And um, that might sound complicated. It actually is not that compared to Red Spectacles. But uh... yeah. well, I think the thing that really stood out to me was, um, you know, at first when you had decided because the, these two films, I, I think, weren't necessarily on the roadmap for the Oshi coverage initially, right, Kenneth? I, I think I wanted to touch on the Kerbero saga somehow, but may, I, I didn't know if I wanted to uh, touch on it extensively, though. So, uh, so, right. yeah, so, so yes and no, in all honesty. Okay, because uh, when you announced that, okay, we're going to try watching these two films, I was like, oh, no, because, you know, <laughs> we, we had already watched Red Spectacles in, you know, last episode, as I mentioned. It, it wasn't really to my taste. It, it was a really... It was an interesting, uh, if I can put it nicely, interesting attempt to mix um, anime into a live-action world. And, you know, unfortunately very uneven and um, at times really ridiculous uh, storyline that... uh, I shouldn't say the storyline, but uh, the execution, I would say, was more the ridiculous thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, that just didn't fit well uh, within a uh, live-action 
uh, medium. You know, I mean, uh, you know, it's, I think there are things that fit very well in anime that don't fit well in a live action, vice versa, of course. That's mm-hmm. just how the, it is with the medium, right? So when uh, you announced that we were going to uh, cover these two films, I was actually kind of like, oh, okay, <laughs> again. <laughs> but actually, and I, I can say this as well with uh, Jinro, uh, I actually very much enjoyed both of these films uh, in their own right, as um, in the case of Stray Dog as a live-action film and in the case of Jinro as an on- animated film. Um, you know, Stray Dog, I think uh, we were sort of talking off-air, of course, that uh, of... Um, you know, movies that it was reminiscent of, and uh, you had brought up uh, Rainy Dog, which was a um, film uh, directed by uh, Takashi Miike in mm-hmm. his, um, uh, he did a trilogy of films uh, covering kind of like Outcast, uh, Yakuza, um, and in Rainy Dog, uh, uh, the said, uh, the, um, the protagonist of that film is a Yakuza who basically gets uh, exiled to uh, Taiwan, mm-hmm. you know, of all places, and you know, coincidentally, you know, that's where Stray Dog is set, although in very different regions of that uh, country. So I, I kind of feel that these two films are somewhat uh, similar in a way. Um, they have a very similar tone. Um, they're both sort of, they both have this sort of contemplative, sort of almost romantic kind of uh, feel to them. This, In a way, I kind of feel like um, maybe Oshi more so than Miike uh, I almost kind of feel like he maybe, I don't know if he'd ever been to Taiwan before, but I kind of feel like through this film, he wanted to somewhat show his love for the country mm-hmm. or, you know, in particular Taipei or whatever area else's areas that he was filming in. Uh, because I think you could almost call this film a travelogue of sorts. Um, I would say at least a good 20, 25 minutes of the film are these tracking shots of the, um, of the, of the uh, city as well as the town areas of uh, of whatever area in Taiwan he's filming. And, uh, you know, you, I just couldn't help but feel like, gee, I kind of want to go to Taiwan again, <laughs> and, uh, you know, because... Uh, and, and, and load Kenji Kawai's score on your iPod. And just walk, yeah, <laughs> walk yeah, yeah, which I'll, which I'll get into in a second. Um, but I kind of felt like, you know, over on uh, the V Cinema show, uh, we did a series on uh, Taiwanese uh, new wave cinema. So mm-hmm. these are the you know the films of like Edward Yang and Ho Shao Shen, um, et cetera, and uh, Simon Lang. And um, you know one of the characteristics of those uh, uh, three film directors is that they deal with um, basically showing modern Taiwan in a very uh, in, in its urban space and how much people you know live and deal with, uh, you know, living in the city areas of Taiwan, you know, something that's, you know, you know, we see a lot of in, let's say, American cinema with New York and San Francisco, things like that. But, you know, we don't see so much in, you know, places like Taiwan, which are very much less publicized. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I I almost felt in a way that uh, Stray Dog was kind of going along that same sort of path, you know, I mean... It was much, obviously, much more from an outsider's perspective, you know. I think that um, there's a lot less uh, subtlety in, you know, the sort of um, romanticism that uh, the filmmaker was feeling for the country, you know, whereas Edward Yang might not linger so much on these tracking shots of the city, you know. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, certainly Oshi did, you know, and I think, you know, since most of the audience who 
listen to this podcast, let's say, and maybe, uh, you know, are inspired enough to go out and seek the film, they might also be able to see Taiwan or Taipei again, wherever well, she filmed, uh, uh, filmed this, uh, uh, shot this film uh, and see it from, you know, this outsider perspective and really kind of get this idea of what Taiwan is really like, you mm. know, because I think a lot of people don't really know what Taiwan is like without visiting it, you know. Yeah, in Hong, in, 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 not in Hong Kong movies, but in, in the kind of low budget Taiwanese genre movies, the gangster movies and right. stuff like that, Taiwan has never showcased, they are just more low budget, right. kind, kind of more right. grungy gangster movies and grungy sure. meaning that uh, the gangster life isn't as, isn't as glamorized uh, due to kind of budget sometimes but due to a choice uh, but but uh, it, it's not uh, it's not a showcase of uh, the, ge- the geography because i've never right. seen taiwan showcased in uh, in taiwanese movies or hong kong movies uh, in this way right right yeah so i i think for that reason the film bears you know at least some watching if you definitely if you have some interest in the country as far as the story goes um i i think that you know this this film has much more of an even keel as far as um i think you know as we mentioned you know um this film is related to red spectacles in the way that it's basically part of that uh the context of uh, red spectacles it's it's basically a a part that you don't see in red spectacles mm-hmm. so you know, the, the character goes away and then he comes back in red spectacles but we don't really know what has happened to him in that time but now we sort of do know through stray dog so it's mm-hmm. part of that the red spectacles uh, timeline uh, me, it, it, it doesn't really help if, in all honesty if you watch Stray Dog first Red Spectacles after and vice versa because Red Spectacles is such a, a mess anyway so it's not like it, it well, really yeah, that... makes more sense with Stray right. Dog in the back of your head definitely not not for me anyway right it doesn't but you know it's kind of interesting how different they are in tone though mm-hmm. so that that's what sort of interested me is that they're within the same broad timeline but the tone of the two films is so different. You know, uh, Red Spectacles, again, being sort of goofy and weird, I guess, or quirky, whatever yeah. uh, whatever adjective that uh, Western uh, Western audiences will lodge against an Asian film, you know. Crap. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, Stray Dog, I would say, is much more of a, a film film uh, rather than just being like a, a film uh, anime kind of uh, shoe shoehorned into a film so in that way i think um the film bears watching it as far as the storyline goes though um i kind of felt in a way a little bit more this uh, uh Oshi's approach to the film was a little bit closer to his approach to let's say angel's egg in that he's using more dense and layered uh metaphors you know obviously there's the uh the title of the film is a stray dog mm-hmm. and that's sort of a running uh thematic element throughout the uh dialogue in the film you know yeah. like every once in a while you know character will sometimes a little less subtly than maybe you'd want to you know go into you know what a stray dog is you know a stray dog you know has has no master but then 
you know, they, they go into this whole story about a stray dog and how he loses his master, but then the master in the end is the one who wins because, mm-hmm. because he, the master holds the power to, you know, all this, you know, all this stuff. It, it, it's sort of, it's layered into the actual overall, um, uh, theme of this, uh, Care Bear saga, uh, w- which I think I'll talk about a little bit more in, uh, Jinro. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, so, uh, uh but as far as, you know, again, metaphors, you have the character Inui. Uh, I, uh, the Japanese word for dog is Inu. Mm-hmm. So that's maybe probably a little less subtle to Japanese uh, audience. Um, and But as far as I think just the overall mood of the story goes, again, much kind of more similar to Angel's Egg and, and its use of metaphor, but also I think of its tone, too. It has, again, a much more contemplative tone than Red Spectacles, which, you know, again, we've already kind of gone through. Does It's sort of more of a mixed bag of tones, you know, to say the least. And um, and as you mentioned, Kenji Kawai, who did the soundtrack of the film, um, Kenji Kawai to me is sort of hot and cold you know sometimes mm-hmm. I'll really love his work and sometimes it's like uh, okay typical anime J-pop song mm-hmm. you know with with screaming guitars and all that stuff right but uh, his soundtrack in this uh, film is uh, excellent I think yes. it really adds to the somber mood of the film uh, sometimes in a in almost a I don't want to say ironic I don't think that's the word but Almost in a way that I think he's trying to exploit um, the tone of the film uh, to his own ends. I think there's a there's one of the themes that's kind of recurrent in the film, which is kind of more like a um, uh, what's the type of music? Spanish. Uh, it's very it's very Latino flavored. Is that uh, yeah yeah? I just can't remember the name the 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 genre. But anyway, it, it is it has that flavor, and I think he's kind of using that to um, to his advantage because there's there's an obvious sort of um, as I said, contemplative, moody, somber tone to the film that he's trying to that's already there, which which he further evokes with the music, which is kind of uh, which is kind of a good thing. You know, I mean. Like I said, it, it, the soundtrack does work excellently with the film. So, um, yeah, so, but I think that's as far as the film goes, you know, I was really uh, happy with it. And, uh, you know, much more, it, it kind of wiped that uh, bitter taste out of my mouth that, that <laughs> Red Spectacles put there. Yeah, I, I think also that it's a, it, it's a it, I have some issues with it, but overall it's a much stronger, more coherent movie, definitely. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I could start to figure out kind of what symbolism is uh, is being presented here and all of that and and, and the movie s- looks superb that, that's very clean looking cinematography su- superb colors no no extra style no extra grain to anything just uh, just a vibrant frame the cinematography by the way is according to wikipedia by yosuke my mamaya mamia sorry yosuke mamia uh, which i don't know if it's a famous cinematographer or not but re- regardless the, the movie looks absolutely terrific and uh, i i mean it's far from successful in my mind as the mixture of light and wacky and felt doesn't work truly well but a lot 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 more better uh, and uh, I, I think i've 
since I made my notes, I, I think uh, the movie has kind of sunk in, uh, in in a good way. That I started to appreciate that. Um, I, you know, in essence, I want to return to it. I mean, that's also good, uh, a good a good thing to have after. Uh, I think I watched it like tw- twice before this recording, just to get a sense of it before, and then to do my main notes for the second viewing. Um, well, you know, I, let, let me say something crazy. I actually kind of wanted to go back to red spectacles and wow. try to see <laughs> try to see if there were any you know thematic elements that would sort of you know sort of even themselves out in my mind because you know as we and are said, 15 minutes in fuck this shit no there's yeah, nothing maybe here. yeah maybe <laughs> but uh, yeah i mean i think once we have this coverage in the bag i think you and i are i think i'm sensing that you and i are the kind of viewers that will maybe give it a chance now that we have it on on wax so to say now that we have a sort of gathered coverage that we can have in our brain and then go back to and then maybe 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 we'll try maybe we'll try to be a Cadaveros expert <laughs> uh, even more than uh, even more than the podcast series let's uh, let's write an essay on this <laughs> sure or maybe not <laughs> uh, but it, it starts it, it sticks to the tradition of the red spectacles by opening hard um uh, something because it's set during the riot, uh, even though it's not an action sequence here, but we get, you know, glimpses from within the riot uh, that uh, the, the master, uh, the the dogs have turned against the masters essentially. Right. And, and it, you know, actually, in fact, uh, the beginning to me was so similar to the beginning of uh, Red Spectacles that you know, as I mentioned to you uh, while I was watching the film, Ken, that I thought I had made a mistake and started watching Red Spectacles again. I was like, wait, I've seen this before, and, you know. But then when it starts to go into uh, you know the character going off to Taiwan, then I kind of realized, okay, this is not the same film. Yeah, but the was, beginnings are very in, similar. Yeah, it was still in color when the movie switches. <laughs> so, <cute. Right. laughs> uh, but I. I I do like that because the audiences that sat down with this movie based on like the poster image, you know, and they they see that the movie is kind of channeling a not an action aura but something hard, something you know, you know there's a conflict here, a military conflict here, mm-hmm. and uh, and uh, it's a choice I do like because there's nothing wrong with messing with audiences' expectations, you know, to kind of pull the rug out from underneath them I, I i support that experimentation to be even to be a little little bit of schizo uh, schizophrenic in terms of mixing mood i have no problems with that in concept i mean hong kong cinema in similar vein has been doing that for oh, years right. Right. and and it's charming when working it's charming when being totally wrong at sometimes and sometimes very frustrating of course uh, like any cinematic storytelling choice can be so uh, but i do support the fact that the 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 movies uh are what you uh expect when you see the poster and the dvd art and, and what have you uh it's definitely true for red spectacles and and stray dogs it's an easy choice to support even though in red spectacles it's not well executed in that regard right and uh and, and and I love in combination with the with the score you you see these um, these uh, Kerberos uh, cops these soldiers they are they are worn by the battles and they are seen in that sh- uh, shot going through the corridor in various stages of being suit, uh, suited up uh, either they have their mask completely off some 
only have their red spectacles still on, which is without the gas mask, essentially, and the helmet looks really... I don't know, I find it kind of alluring. Uh, the red spectacles in the <laughs> in itself, it's a kind of an alluring image when only placed, in this case, uh, one of the soldiers he passes, uh, when only placed on on a human head, so to say. Uh, oh, yeah, it's very menacing, right? I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, the, red, is, red is the color of, you know, blood and death and all that kind of stuff in, in our minds, right? So... Uh, but 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 it's uh, compared to red spectacles. This is a calmer opening, and uh, it, it's a it's a very atmospheric opening because that walk through mm-hmm. through the corridor where the rebels are holed up in, and, and it's not going it's not going superbly well or anything. It's uh, kind of a last stand, and 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 then and and then you know our main character gets essentially betrayed. You know he can't. He doesn't have a master anymore. He's absolutely clueless. He is a stray dog now, and uh, without any any commands. <laughs> and uh, it's a uh, it's a very firm, unsubtle kind of symbolism, but that works a lot better in this movie, as I've explained in a little bit more uh, in some sections when they do, when these two characters meet again, Todomi and Inoi. The, then you have uh, some very almost comedic. Uh, uh, visual, uh, uh, the, the, he visually represents the, the, the fact that he's a dog in a comedic way, uh, uh, Oshi, uh, once they reconnect, but I'll, I'll, I'll get to that. On the soundtrack, by the way, uh, Kenji Kawa's uh, score is actually included in the box set that uh, Stray Dog and Red Spectacles, um, uh, the box set that came out in Japan and in the, U- in the US, uh, they included the, the soundtrack uh, along with the movie Talking Head, which uh, doesn't have anything to do with uh, these two movies. So, so it's a very nice addition to uh, to that box set. Uh, that acoustic score is very, very vibrant. Very, it d- just envelops you. Uh, it's a, it's a, it's a wonderful mood setter. Right, and I wanted to add in quickly that uh, I, I, just a few minutes ago we couldn't think of the kind of music that uh, that Kawhi is playing. It's flamenco music. It's oh, flamenco flavored, which is you know going along with the the theme of the film, the sort of contemplative, as I said, somewhat romantic theme of the film. You know, flamenco is itself a very romantic uh, uh, kind of music, and, and and it all is very strangely emotional actually when um, uh, I know I'm going kind of scene by scene now but I think it's important that when the opening credits are played over black and white stills of uh, dogs on the street, stray dogs it's via yeah. the music it's strangely emotional because they, these are dogs without their masters and you know she has mm. kind of trained, trained as well he, he's starting to make his very evident symbolism come through in more of an acceptable way for me. Um, right. uh, it, it definitely stuck uh, with me, but but I think without uh, Kawai's uh, music being so excellent, I don't think that montage would have worked as well. I think they, it, it, it's a great you know collaboration in that regard, but the de- music definitely does something to my emotional senses. So. Yeah, you know, as I said, it's a it's a very polished look when once they get to Taiwan and uh, and and uh, also very atmospheric, the very shots of when you see Koichi. Uh, I think his first scene in is in his familiar trench coat, that scene in the red spectacles, and it, we mm. get reminded of images that we yeah extracted not necessarily liked in red spectacles, but we are reminded of images and and. I, 
I kind of felt like it was a cool thing that hey, it's back. The, the you know he he's back. The, the kind of image of uh, him in the trench coat is back because prior the movie has, you know, played well with me. You know, I, I'm kind of on board now. Right. And uh, well, actually, at that point, you know, I was actually starting to worry a little bit because I was thinking <laughs> this is not going to go back into Red Spectacles nuttiness, is it? You yeah. know, and is it luckily, start tearing it, down luckily walls and crap I mean, like that. <laughs> right, and l- luckily, I mean, there there is. A little humor in the story, you know, but um, you know it's a lot less uh, force than it is in Red Spectacles, mm. you know, which is kind of a, a good thing, I thought. <laughs> the, the thing uh, when I got word word though was during uh, one or two of those long takes where oh she just lets the camera run while uh, not not by the way not not as you stated not the necessarily the scenes where he's just walking with the characters in the alleyway but when uh the girl and you know is eating uh, noodles together after he's busted into her apartment and uh mm-hmm. and they he realizes that you know he needs her he might as well make himself at home and treat this homely situation as it is but the camera sits on them eating noodles for such a long time and mm-hmm. it does the same with koichi sitting at the pier you know no, 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 no! Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! Stop it! <laughs> pull back! Pull back! Pull back! The music well, can't the carry scene, all the of that. Well, the scene with them eating noodles, I, I always kind of wonder because uh, you know that plays out in uh, Red Spectacles too. There's a there's a scene where you know the two of the characters are eating noodles together, and that, that's why that's why earlier I was wondering about you know what this the the Tachiguishi uh, element of the story actually means because. You know, as I mentioned, you know, Tachigui in real life, in real life Japan is very, you know, and very unglamorous thing. You're not sitting down at a restaurant, you know, looking at a menu, you know, talking to a waiter, that kind of thing. You're just going to a, a basically a stand and eating and then running. And then, you know, in this story, you know, the Tachigui, she are kind of regarded as a sort of like... Um, I don't want to call them necessarily an elite class, but they're regarded as somewhat like legendary in a way. You know, I mean, it, the storyline is called Tachigui Retsuden, which means you know the legend of the Tachiguishi. Mm. So, like, um, you know, are, are are they trying to basically pose that you know? Whereas you know, here in real life, in the modern day, you know, like we think of people going to nice restaurants, we think of that as being like this great kind of like upper class kind of thing. You know, like. Oh, you're going to, you know, whatever this famous restaurant, you know, and has. I'm guessing that you know, relatively speaking, you know, in this new world of the Kerberos uh, saga, you know, has have things gotten so bad that Tachigui is considered some kind of like elite activity that mm. only the upper class can. Uh, partake in and the lower classes have to instead eat instant ramen at home or something you yeah. know? <laughs> that, that's why i'm kind of wondering about this element of the story you know is it supposed to be positioning how bad the society has gotten that you know that that the these standing eaters are the upper class or you know what exactly is it you know yeah exactly yeah, so i'm yeah. still curious yeah exactly i mean you're making me curious as well to see uh, where that goes i didn't necessarily extract it from in particular that scene which is just a way too long shot of uh, of uh, nothing but, but but i guess also it, it, it's fun 
the way that situation happens is because she, Tangmir, is so disarming and so cute, you know, she's not threatened by the fact that he busts in there with a gun, uh, thinking right. that he's going to find Quichi in there. And, and after that, he just have to roll with it that she, she, he can't get to her, you know, she, she's not going to be the damsel in distress or anything. She, oh, right. And she's pretty tough throughout the whole film, you know, I yeah. mean, she slaps them around a couple of times, yeah. <laughs> you know, and she's the one who's always saying like, giving them more like, Hey, shut up. You know, when they're talking loudly and she's trying to sleep or, or she's the one that, uh, was basically guiding um guiding the characters at points and they're saying like hey come over here come over here you know like so she's basically the one who's in control you know mm-hmm. i mean i guess you could say in a way she's in that part of the storyline she is the master whereas they are still kind of the stray dogs of yeah. of uh of the of the theme uh, i i like also a, a very cool moment i actually one of those moments that look just look cool is in the midst of this, I don't remember which scene it was, but we get a brief cutaway of uh, a large number of Kerberos cops looking up. They're, they're standing in the frame and they all look up at the same time. And then Oshi cuts away to something else. I, I like the fact that he reminds us of that it's this is the kind of the mixture of it all. And it, it creates atmosphere. Uh, cutting away to them like that. There, there was a similar shot in the Red Spectacles where where we saw the one a Kerberos cop in the rain, which looked very. It was a nice reminder of what um, in that movie were or of the fairly good opening. But uh, right. I, I I actually like the feeling of the fact that the story can is taking place so far away from the center of it all, but we get like a brief reminder of. This is it, and all set to that music makes it uh, very alluring, actually. Well, yeah, it's a it's a great contrast. It's a contrast of these sort of hard and gentle images, right? Mm. I mean, as you said, the rain, and then the uh, the Kerberos cops themselves. Mm. You know, so it's kind of this kind of mixture of elements that, uh, again, you know, you had with red spectacles to degree but that was more of a bad mixture whereas mm-hmm. this is more of like a good mixture there's more continuity and a little more subtlety to to it and without the music those scenes uh, of um the, the, the sightseeing trip of taiwan streets and its street performance and its alleys without the music those scenes would have been incredibly offensive to me but goddamn i was disarmed in, be, be, because it's somehow atmospheric to see a long shot with uh, the characters walking in an alley, no dialogue. Uh, <laughs> you know, so without the, yeah, I, I don't know. Oshie was he? He got his way. You know, uh, he got to have those shots in the movie. You know, I like these alleys a lot. I want to shoot them, mm-hmm. and or but. It, it still kind of worked because uh, you had a composer kind of uh, making sure it. Uh, I don't know how to explain it. It just uh, appealed to me to combine to this audio-visual combination, if you will. Right. Well, it's all. It's always a matter of how patient you can be with a director, right? I mean, 
I, I'm sure that, you know, as, as you said, you know, without the music, it might have came off as being uh, self-indulgent. To me, it wasn't self-indulgent at all. Mm-hmm. I think even without the music, it wouldn't be considered self-indulgent. I, I mean, they're, they're trying to set a mood and they're trying to set a setting for the thing. And, and I know that I'm far more, probably far more um, tolerant of art film than a lot of people are. But to a certain degree, you know, I, I can't be pushed too far in, with my patients when it comes to art film or, you know, again, you know, the self-indulgence will just stick out in my head and that'll be something that I'll consider a negative part, uh, point of the film. I, but I can certainly see some people, uh, not liking this film at all because of that, because it will, it will sort of maybe push their threshold a little bit, even though, um, you know, that would be sort of a, a misfortune because you kind of think, well, what kind of films do you want to be watching all the time? I mean, do you have to continuously be stimulated with explosions and killings? And and I know there's going to be some people listening to this right now thinking in their head, yes, I do have to be, you know, but, um, <laughs> but you know, it's just like everything else. You got to be well-rounded, you know, you got you can't take from one particular, um, one particular genre, one particular, uh, you know, you don't eat one kind of food all the time. You don't, you don't read one kind of book all the time. You have to take a little variety in there. And I think this film delivers in that, uh, you know, as you said, Kenneth, it starts off with a, a little sort of action and then it goes into sort of the more contemplative, romantic mood of the film. Then it kind of starts going into the mystery of the film. I think that's kind of a pretty good mix of, uh, of genres that, uh, you know, that don't really point to themselves, you know, like, I have to put action here. I have to put this here. I have to put this here. Mm-hmm. You know, whereas Red Spectacles did feel more like a, a mishmash of elements that both didn't fit very well together and I kind of felt were really forced in a way. Um, you know, she kind of felt like, oh, maybe I have to put this in here or the audience is not going to be engaged with this element of the story. So it was like too much all at once, maybe. That's what I'm trying to say yeah. with Red Spectacles, you know. But Stray Dog, I think, is is a good mix of of uh, story elements. And I really want to stick it out one scene because I, I want to hear your take on it. It really confused okay. me, actually. Uh, so I'm going to try and set it up. And it re- it connects to my feeling that there, there is coherency, there is effect here, but not... Uh, superb effect uh, or uh, or heartfelt matters here and effective symbolism so the scene uh, i'm gonna set it up and talk a little bit about the things about it uh, there, there is talks obviously we've said it and in the movie it's very um explicit talks of that these these cabaret cops are stray dogs and they are holding grudges against their former master and and and, and there is a sequence here with that uh, with that contact that Inoue has in Taiwan, where they have a, they they have discussion among other things about these things, but they stage it mm. in a very odd way. For instance, they're looking out in the distance while speaking of these themes, and you have Inoue in a prison cell or on the other side of a of a gate pushing himself against that and he's being oh, okay. called and he's being called yeah he's being called lassie as well and and it's very it's both a combination of 
very explicit symbolism. I can get that, and and uh, therefore I found found this movie coherent. But the way they stage these talking sequences in a very not abstract but almost over the top cartoony way. You know what I'm saying? Uh, do you remember the staging? Yes, yes. I, I think that was one of the scenes in which the. As I mentioned with Red Spectacles, you know, there's several scenes where you kind of feel like he's trying to shoehorn an anime style into a live action film. And I thought that particular sequence, the one with the, the, the jail cell, as you said, where he's sort of like, he's sort of holding, holding onto the bars like he wants to escape. And in fact, at the end of that dialogue, actually, he's sort of like, goes, ah, like that, you know. And then there's some obvious, you know, like uh, heavy-handed symbolism going on there, mm-hmm. you know, with you know trying to escape the uh, the binds that tie you, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, I wasn't really crazy about it, but uh, on the other hand, you know, it was like one of those things where it wasn't a particularly long sequence, mm-hmm. and at least there was some continuity to it. It wasn't just like something random. You yeah, know, no, oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it does right. uh, it, it does very much explain matters, so, and, uh, and and there are. There are things here that I really like in terms of the overall symbolism and right. all of that. And so, and, I was going to say, so that I think that that scene itself is a little heavy-handed, but I, I think the what really sort of makes it heavy-handed, unfortunately, is the fact that he's using uh, Oshi, that is. Oshi is using actors who are, again, they're voice actors. They're not professional, you know, um, on-the-screen actors. So I think at times they don't act as... Uh, professional would and you know this again this really stood out in in red spectacles i remember mentioning that you know well had he used professional actors or at least you know very well trained actors i think this film could have come off a little better because you know people who are trained as professional actors know how to you know portray their roles in a more subtle and at least realistic to the theme of the film matter i kind of feel the voice actors you know whereas they did have very good voices of course being voice actors i i think at times they took their roles in this sort of over-the-top manner as you said that don't didn't really fit well with the the the, the the tone of the film, you know, in the mm-hmm. case of Stray Dog. Red Speckles, that's another matter because, again, we're talking about something that maybe is already over the top by nature, you know, um, because of, you know, how the film was arranged and and this, how the scenes were written, etc. But I think Stray Dog, you know, he's, he's trying to go for, again, a more... Um, a more even-toned uh, uh, production... And, you know, the scene that you're talking about in particular is one that stands out as being kind of like uh, a little over the top. Please stop. Yeah, exactly. But but having said that, I'm very weak for when when he finally meets meets Quichi. And and he hears his whistling from miles away. Obviously, that kind of connects to it. There's a frequency only a dog hears because they're on a beach, a very... You know, the sound of the waves is very, uh, you know, intrusive on the soundtrack. And yet, mm-hmm. you know, he hears the whistling and uh, and it goes down on all fours when he sees his master again. And But but it is funny because it leads to a cartoony scene involving reactions in close-up, you know. And a, and a very silly chase in the, uh, in, you know, in the rough. And... Uh, 
Okay, it might be too light for the attempt at depth there, but you know what? I I had fun when 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 when, when this happens because it's uh, it's almost it's super silly and uh, it kind of worked if, for me for for my sensibilities anyway. Yeah, it it broke up the uh, it it definitely broke up the uh, the the mood, which you know maybe at that point it, it would have been a good idea, you know, to get a little laugh in there. A little goofy moment. Uh, um, I'm kind of glad that he didn't do stuff like that too much, though. Otherwise, mm-hmm. again, we would have been going into Red Spectacles territory. Oh yeah, I agree. I mean, it's a, it, it takes place during a section here, and then it's spread out a little bit, a little bit throughout the movie. But the, it it doesn't take over the movie because we we are it, the the main point, the, really the main theme is that you know stray dogs looking for commands from their masters master again i mean he's desperate to find a master again uh, and right. and finally when he when he does say uh, you know you never know you you don't know if that is just because he has found him again doesn't mean that everything's going to be okay again uh mm-hmm. and uh and <laughs> i i love the little touch uh, speaking of that's the silly comedy of the day chased each other i uh, i think they for some reason got uh, wet i think they went into the water obviously and they lay out their clothes to dry as they were on them originally so obviously the the, the shoes the socks the pants the, <laughs> the shirts <laughs> uh, i don't know those little visual touches that uh, just made me smile you know <laughs> they, they did that just because a little whimsy, just, if you will just for you maybe me just for me of course of course it all makes sense now for back in the day when i was not very very old they were thinking of me um <laughs> uh, but um yeah and and and, and essentially uh we trying to round up a discussion here that there is this, there, there is a very a real or two where not much happens because you know is kind of waiting for for command you know they move in together the trio move in together and there, there's extensive scenes of eating and, uh, and and it's all very quiet and aimless because of uh, the dog in waiting, you know. Uh, and um, but it's not boring. Actually, it, it, it isn't boring. And, uh, and and it's also a way shorter mo- movie than Red Spectacles. This is a bit over ninety minutes, I think, or close to a hundred. Yeah. Red Spectacles was a slow ass trek for uh, lasting two hours. Mm-hmm. So so I appreciate it in that uh, regard. And uh, and. Uh, you know, we, we, without spoiling anything, but we, we, we get the reappearance of the mime assassination crew, now in color. Yeah. Which, uh, I don't know, it was one of those moments where I know they kind of frustrated me in Red Spectacles, but I, I, I found it was fun to see certain imagery back now that overall the imagery and symbolism is starting to work a little bit better. And, mm. and and the most fun moment for me, I, I, I'm a fan of quirky humor, so I think it, uh, uh, when it works, it's really memorable. There, one of the mimes starts playing a violin, and they all, let's say these 10, uh, ten uh, members of the assassination crew have bought cool drinks that they all share, and they say cheers to each other from yeah. each respective hideout while waiting for uh, the the battle to begin the the, the kind of extensive uh, gunplay sequence that uh, that uh, that ends the film without spoiling anything and uh, it, it's all starting to work a little bit i mean do you think O'Shea is growing more confident as a filmmaker more clever as a filmmaker as a, looking at the evidence uh, that we've um, that we've laid here before us here in this series 
Yeah, I would say so. I mean, he, it seems like he's definitely figured some things out. I, I, I think, he, you know, as, as as I said, you know, compared to, let's say, uh, something like uh, Angel's Egg, I, I think he's still maybe, um, maybe writing his uh, stories a little too densely, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, um, I kind of feel that, you know, the themes of both these films, again, both Angel's Egg and this one, are a little too, uh, at times, confining, you know? It feels like he doesn't let his characters at times, like, be anywhere outside of the theme, you know? It's like they always have to be talking about stray dogs, and there always has to be this imagery of this and that, you know? And Mm -hmm. it just, sometimes you just kind of feel like you want to see them and I think maybe this is why they had those scenes, you know, where they're going through the back alleys and stuff, you know, where, because that, those are the scenes where a lot of times that's the only time they're not talking about, you know, this, these very serious, heavily thematic matters that are, um, that are in the story, you know, and, but I kind of feel that maybe he should balance that out a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think in this film, he is just, to me, at least, you know, he, he seems to be displaying that he's, you know, learned something. He's gotten a rhythm to some, to uh, making films um, that possibly he didn't have in earlier films. Mm. You know? Oh, yeah, I agree. And uh, that's, uh, I mean, I, I do find that ultimately things do clash here. Uh, the deeper, the, the attempt at deeper emotions mixed with quirky behavior, but I'm way more receptive to it and more accepted. I, I do accept it a lot more easy, and I still feel it also. So uh, there is progress here, and uh, and quite quite a bit uh, because, as I said, I'm, um, having watched it uh, a few days ago, it, it's starting to sink in that uh, I I definitely have I, I have no dislike, true dislike for it. I, I it's sinking in in a good way that uh, I like the experimentation here and the and the progress. And I also should mention that Parvik could be due also to the crew. You know, I, I didn't really look deeply into who did what as far as the crew goes. I mean, I know filmmakers like working with, um, you know, the same crew every film they possibly can because, you know, everyone knows their strengths and weakness and stuff like that. So maybe the crew had something to do with it. Maybe, you know, he had some people working with who he felt a lot more comfortable with. It's hard to say, you know, unless we really go deeply into, um, you know, asking him in person, let's say, mm-hmm. seeing like, you know, what did you learn from Angel Egg and how did, was that uh, from the time the Angel's Egg was made, excuse me, and how did that translate to, you know, the stuff that you made during the Carabero saga, you know, or, you know, even before that when he was with... Uh, working on Urusei Yatsura and stuff like that, right? And the only note I still have left is, uh, uh, you know, we're we're ending on a kind of fairly positive note, but uh, um, I'm going to ask you, did you think at all the continual appearance of the the red balls and the tomatoes and connecting to the eyes you know was that at all any effective thing that Oshi did here or was it just a reminder of the glowing red eyes kind of a lame reminder of the glowing red eyes the the, the continual appearance of these of the of the red circle if you will um i didn't feel it was intrusive you know i, I you know when i first saw one of those 
uh, images, you know, that I, you know, that's the first thing that came to mind, of course, was the red eyes. But, I, you know, I thought it, that was fine, you know. Mm. I think ultimately, after I finished the movie, I, I, I sat down and thought of it. And it, it, it was just a, you know, a reminder of uh, of a key thing, either. You know, because another, another, like, dialogue I liked about the film is that, uh, you know, it's talking about essentially that even though these events, the riots were three years ago, it still feels very recent to him. It could might as well have been three days ago. So whenever this is, you know, the appearance of something round and red comes into uh, comes into his life in the frame, it uh, it is a very firm reminder, a very real reminder, you know, finding, uh, you know, uh, buying tom- uh, tomatoes from the shop or, or, or what have you. So... Um, Right. So, so ultimately, I thought it was it, it wasn't the intrusive, but n- watching the movie and not knowing it, I, I was kind of on, you know, s- sitting there kind of tensely. Are you going to overdo this? Are you going to be too pretentious about this? <laughs> but- Kenneth, I, I have to say this because uh, I, I haven't said this to you, but uh, you know, you can edit this out. But I kind of think you're a little too sensitive to uh, to art film. I know, I, mean, <laughs> I know. <laughs> maybe in the same way that I'm too sensitive to like obvious pandering of like uh fake exploitation <laughs> films you know the, the second that you know one of these things pops up that you know, sort of rubs <laughs> us the wrong way we'll be like oh i have to be on the guard now you know, like, that kind of like if i watch like a I'll be ready to hate now ready to bat <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh you you know you're not far off there it's probably true but uh but uh it's fine in the end it was fine Exhale. <laughs> Ooh, okay, good. I can relax now. <laughs> Until the next movie. Oh my god, it's red again! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I still have the red spectacle. What the hell? <laughs> I thought I was gonna be able to watch this relax, but I can't. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that's uh, that's the end of my notes. Do you have anything else you want to add, uh, John, before we move on to Gene Rowe? Um, I actually do not. No, I can. Right on. So let's move on to the next film then. This comes recommended, people. So uh, let's see if the same is true for for the um, prequel, prequel, if you will. Jinro, The Wolf Brigade from 1999. So we'll talk about that after the slight break. Welcome back in the second half of the show is dedicated to the discussion, the review and the background and all of that for the anime, Jinro, The Wolf Brigade, which is not directed by Oshi. It's written, but it still makes sense to speak of it because it does belong to the Kerbero saga. But it is directed by Hiroyuki Okiura, and uh, he's known for his detailed effects uh, anima- animation in, for example... The chopper attack scene in Pet Labor 2, the movie, is something that um, people uh, single out. And his highly realistic character animation in works such as in the opening credits to Cowboy Bebop, the movie, and uh, several production IG features such as Ghost of the Shell, 
that that's work that's single out so it's a it's a surely a well-known name a respected name and it's uh, Jin Rowe is his debut work as director and it was completed in 1998 and they went on to win um, at least one award uh, he was the recipient of the Minami Toshiko award at the 11th Yubari International Fantastic Film Festival in uh, February 2000 and uh, Okiura would go on to make, uh, I think he's made at least one other movie, and uh, the next one was um, a, another anime called A Letter to Momo, uh, which premiered at the uh, 2011 Toronto International Film Festival, 11 years after his first film, and it was in development for seven years, so taking his sweet time. And uh, and, and again, as mentioned earlier, Jin Ro is the first part of the story arc we've covered via the red spectacles and stray dog it's set um, it's the one that's set uh, the earliest if you will but uh, you don't need necessarily to fully 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 enjoy Jin Ro. you don't need red spe- the red spectacles and stray dog as um, as homework so to say but uh, it's entirely up to you i mean it doesn't hurt uh, it's a tr- trilogy of uh, kebero saga the that you can schedule with your friends, I guess. <laughs> Starting with the red spectacles, and then everybody leaves, right. and, and then you then you left alone. But it, yeah, on the contrary, I kind of wish we would have watched Jinro first because yeah. <laughs> there are a lot of, um, at least for for me, there are a lot of a uh, thematic and story elements that are in Jinro that are very important to the other two films mm. in order to sort of get right. Okay, but I'll talk about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was initially considered to be done as live action, and this was before Ghost in the Shell, uh, which came out in 1995. But uh, Oshii went into production on Ghost in the Shell instead, and um, and, the, and the project was uh, um, not shelved, but uh, it was continued to be uh, developed and all of that. But the Bandai Visual were not comfortable, apparently, offering the job to Oshii. Uh, to direct another live-action movie based on bad sales and possibly reviews for Red, Red Spectacles and Stray Dogs. So the job was offered to Okiura, who had actually been butting heads apparently with Oshi in terms of design choices for, among other things, the museum sequence in Ghost in the Shell. So, um, yeah, strong, 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 stubborn minds, you know, creative minds. But uh, hopefully it was a, it was a constructive, uh, you know, argument in that regard. I mean, the movie came out well. I really dig Ghost in the Shell, so it's not like, you yeah. know, here's the botched museum sequence just because two people couldn't agree. True. <laughs> sure. uh, although viewers may take away a lot of this and some may not, I mean, I'm not the best person to, and I'm speaking, I'm speaking politics now, I'm, I'm not the best person to absorb that kind of info, but uh, what deserves to be mentioned is that the movie, Gene Rowe, that is, draws real-life parallels to political turmoil, uh, despite being set in, on, in, in, on, in an alternative universe where the events in history have gone down differently. So there are references to a political situation in Japan during the 60s and 70s, where you had protests from the left uh, to a degree towards uh, the US-Japan security treaty. And uh, Oshi, along with uh, Hayao Miyazaki and Isao Takahata of uh, Studio Ghibli, were part of this political movement at this time. And the reference in Jin Ro to uh, Germany taking over Japan apparently is said to echo the political fears of the time where many left-wing political factions thought that the fascists were returning to power. And these fears were added upon 
by the assassination of the head of the Japan Socialist Party, uh, Enjiro Asanuma, uh, on live TV while addressing the the Diet. I guess it's called the Diet. Uh, the yeah. um, um, I've seen footage of that. That's pretty pretty damn eerie. Yeah. Um, and also the current head. Uh, I hope this is correct of the Japanese Liberal Democratic Party. Uh, uh, Nobusuke Kishi was a convicted war criminal, so th- this general sense of turbulence is featured throughout the film. It's you know you you definitely notice it, um, and and it's all a little insight insight into the thinking that goes into into the film that maybe Japanese residents would pick up easier. And while I personally, and this is not a slam on the film, absolutely not. While I personally can't pick it up as easily, it's not pretentious thinking to inject this you know i i absolutely approve of it i think it uh, has a role in the film uh, it, but it doesn't take center stage of the film so you don't need to do a lot of lot of lot of homework to to but, sit down but the ken film. one thing that uh, you didn't mention in this is that uh there's a uh children's story that runs through this uh, story that runs as part of like the theme a parallel theme in the story and Absolutely, you know it's yeah. a Little Red Riding Hood. Yeah, red. Here we go again. Yes. Hello. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Are you on edge right now, Kenneth? I uh, I survived that one as well, John. <laughs> okay. It was tough for a while. No, no, not at all. But uh, you're very right. They feature essentially the um, as a story element, but we won't go too much into it because it's is spoiling the film. But a yeah. story they recite essentially uh, rot caption, which is a very early or maybe the earliest version of the Little Red Riding Hood tale. A uh, very grim, very grim version of it. And they recite that throughout the film and connect that to uh, events in the film as well. Uh, but I like that. It was actually, it was, actually um, yeah, it was good. It was, it was clever. Yeah. But um, we uh, will do a little bit of a plot uh, and then we'll uh, start discussing the movie. And uh, I took it from Wikipedia and... Um, the film takes place in an alternate history in Japan during the 1950s where Germany has conquered Japan. The character of Kazuki Fusei, or Fuse, if you will, uh, a member of the Panzer Corps uh, with the rank of corporal, uh, he is sentenced for not following an order to kill a suicide bomber. And um, along the way during this process he meets Kay, a girl who initially claims to be the suicide bomber's sister and they develop a relationship. However, this relationship proves to be dangerous for the Kerberos core. It's uh it's um there's a lot that is threatened if you will that goes high go goes goes high up if you will so uh so so we won't do too much uh, we won't obviously spoil the entire movie that's why I'm keeping it rather vague but uh, and and it's easy I guess listeners to forget that we're still talking about an anime which I think is a compliment to the film that uh they yeah. they use this kind of story, take it this seriously, but still make it an animated feature. I've always liked that about Japan that uh, that they make straight movies, so to say. Obviously, there are a lot of visual stuff here that uh, that is more that you can accomplish more easily in animation, but it's still a very held back film. But um, we'll uh, we'll get more into that, and I'll let you speak of your your opinion of the film, John. Okay. Well, you were talking earlier about the uh, context of the film, uh, uh, its political context, mm-hmm. um, you know, what was happening as far as, you know, what uh, was happening in real life and what's happening on screen. And this is actually the reason why I said that um, 
I wish I would have seen this film before the other two. Because I think that, well, first off, even if you don't know much about Japanese history, I think that this film does provide a lot of backdrop as to yeah. what's what's happening in the other two films, mm-hmm. you know, which is a good thing. And it, it tells you basically what the Caribbean cops are and what their relationship is to the state and what their relationship is to the people, etc. Yeah, I which agree. I, think is, I agree mm-hmm. because when I first saw that, or when I rewatched it now, when I saw that opening sequence, goddamn it, this is the most clear and more. Right. most laid out history of the Kerberos Cop. So, uh, so, so you're right. right uh, it uh, definitely, maybe it should be viewed in the order that it's uh, in the timeline order, if you will, if you really want to take all this in. Right. But I think even more so for me, because, you know, when I, when I was watching the other two films, you know, I was sort of in my head thinking, okay, why why these cops you know why are they dressed like this you know why is it it has a vaguely european feel to it you know not how they're dressed but um i should say uh the uh design of certain things or the fact that they're for example using you know german guns you know that's the first thing that stands out it's like because you know um you know modern japanese um, you know, they use the more uh, westernized, the more European guns that are not German necessarily or the American style ones and, you know, even to a degree the Russian style um, uh, artillery, etc. So the, those questions were kind of sticking in my head through the first couple of films and I think it wasn't until I actually got like halfway through Stray Dog, which we just talked about which I kind of thought to myself, I wonder if this is any reference to Article 9. Um, Article 9 of the uh, Japanese um, Constitution. When when the U.S. basically made uh, the Japan surrender, they rewrote the Constitution, they meaning the U.S., mm-hmm. and basically stripped out a lot of power from the Japanese, uh, uh, the nation of Japan. You know, for one thing, stripping away the powers of the emperor, um, you know, making him, for example, admit on on air, on the radio to the public that he was not actually a descendant of the gods. Mm. He was just an ordinary human being. That's that was one of the provisions um, that was uh, stayed within the Constitution, that the emperor had no longer had any say in the the proceedings of the country. Article nine is a article that says that. Essentially, that Japan is not allowed to have a military um, except for defense purposes. Now, of course, for defense, they do have, as I said, a military um, as allowed through the Constitution called the uh, GATI, which is the Japan Self-Defense Force. Hmm. And they are deployed usually for humanitarian efforts, very rarely. In fact, I don't think they can be... um, deployed for any kind of aggressive uh, national agenda uh, toward any nation. So even if, like, let's say the U.S., which is probably Japan's closest ally, if we were in a war with Iran, I don't think they could be deployed. Hmm. But Article 9, again, states that they cannot have a a general military uh, for the purpose of aggressive action, uh, again, essentially. But what happened was... um, this, for one thing, the Japan Self-Defense Force was basically the national police force, if I remember correctly, just converted over to a more uh, militaristic, again, hum- 
a militaristic force with a humanistic uh, angle to it. But again, well, and I wish I had the specifics here. I'm going to be sort of fudging some of the facts. Um, what Japan did do, however, was a way of kind of getting around this article is to have its own police force, mm. which could be deployed in not not so much to other nations, let's say, but could be deployed, for example, to control any means of unrest within the country. Mm-hmm. And finally, I started to realize, okay, this Caribbean's cops are trying to reference this sort of loophole that's in this article that says that basically, again, that that Japan can have this sort of militaristic police force under the auspice of being police, but still militaristic in action. So, and in fact, the Japan has had such a police force that was uh, gathered together by uh, partially by Americans to fight communism within Japan, which is, you know, as you were mentioning the assassination of, um, Darn, I forget what his name is. Uh, Inujiro uh, Asanuma. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, Asanuma, right, who was the uh, basically the uh, the head of the Communist Party at the time, you know. You know, there are conspiracies that say that the assassin, who was actually a 17-year-old ultra-nationalist, part of the, um, the ultra-nationalist movement that still exists in Japan, that's mainly present there through these loud, uh, these trucks that kind of, go around Japan, you know, uh, with loudspeakers that, you know, blur, blurt out this, you know, this uh, nationalist rhetoric. But he was part of that uh, movement, the initial, um, the initial uh, movement uh, of this particular right-wing uh, organization. A young boy, 17 years old mm. um, at the time. The, again, we're talking about the assassin. And there are uh, conspiracy theories that say that this police force that was meant to combat, you know, the communists from entering into Japan had employed this boy to assassinate this um, Asanuma, hmm. again, who was the head of the the Communist Party of Japan. And the Communist Party is an actual political party in Japan. It's not like, I don't know how it is over in, uh, over in your country, Kenneth, but like here in the U.S., we're basically a two-party system with, you know, a number of very, very small, weak, independent uh, parties. And and we have a, a political party that has communist leanings, but they have ac- absolutely no power at all here. Mm-hmm. Whereas in Japan, actually, the Communist Party has a... They don't have a lot of power. I mean, they, I think they've only occupied like a, a hand, small handful of seats in, uh, from the time that they formed until now. Um, but uh, but no, no less, uh, nonetheless, I mean, uh, they do have, possess a little bit more power than you'd expect in a country that uh, is, you know, that is basically... Um, been accused of being the puppet of the u.s uh, mm. at times but anyway so um so there's this there's this theory that you know possibly this assassin uh was employed by this uh this uh, neo-militaristic uh, anti-communist uh police brigade which sort of parallels nicely with jinro mm. because as we have a um as we have, we have these characters who are basically, you know, we have this suicide um, bomber, as you mentioned, as well as her, you know, 
quote unquote sister. And we also have this other character, uh, Fuse, Kazuki Fuse, is a member of this Panzer Cops. Um, did you notice, by the way, that I don't know if they did this on purpose or not. I think someone did it, did it on purpose. He looks mm-hmm. almost exactly like uh, Inoue from yeah, Stray Dog, but exactly. it isn't obviously the same character because it wouldn't fit in the timeline. But uh, they, they do, goddamn, they used him as a model for that uh, for that design. It looks like it anyway. Right. Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah, it's, there's very much a parallel between uh, these these films too, but. But what I was getting at is that these two characters of Fuse and um, and the suicide bomber, they are essentially puppets of their organizations. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think this film is trying to bring out these themes. You know, I, I think, in fact, probably the most successfully out of all the three of the films. Um, and I should apologize to Mamoru Ushii for the, saying that because this is the only one that he didn't really direct himself. Though I think on record he said that he wishes that he had directed the film, mm-hmm. but um, and I, I think that that's what's kind of interesting is that the other two films kind of focus more on individuals within an organization, mm-hmm. but this film very much more focuses on the organizations themselves. And even though we have these people who are sort of the lone wolves, the stray dogs within these organizations, you know. They're trying to situate. Um, they're trying to situate Fuse as very much as we said that Inui character, that sort of stray dog within the bunch. You know, in the end, and I, I hate to spoil this. You know, we kind of realize that, much like with stray dog Kerberos Panzer Cops, that it's very difficult to be the stray dog. Mm-hmm. You know, the stray dog in the end has to have a master. You know, and I think that through Jinro, this is a much clearer examination of this theme, you know, that, um, you know, uh, what's the old saying, you know, no man is an island unto Mm -hmm. himself, right? That kind of idea. So, you know, along with that, you know, along with, uh, I think, a really successful examination of this theme, you know, as you mentioned, this is an animated film, you know, I really love the hand animated look to the whole film. You know, yeah. I mean, um, because you know we were coming from, and we we haven't covered it yet, but the the two filmmakers were coming from making um, Ghost in the Shell, right? Which was not hand animated, if I remember correctly. I believe that was it. Most it, it, it mixed. It was famous for kind of mixing okay. CG and traditional cell animation, and then the 2.0 version destroyed that completely. But uh, that's another discussion. <laughs> right. We tried to make it all CG, it seemed, but, uh, but it was a very, it was a cool mixture, and it still works in the original uh, Ghost in the Shell. So, so it, it's interesting that Oshie is in this on this production. Uh, uh, that uh, is very uh, it's very traditional in approach. It doesn't mm. use use cool tools just because they have them. Right, exactly. Which kind of makes you appreciate the film if you know that fact, but is not going to ruin your appreciation if you don't know. Because I think it's pretty evident by watching the film that you know that it's it's again hand animated you know i mean you can tell the difference uh, i mean by the eye i mean even the most uh, even us you know i mean we're the most armchair of animation fans if you can even call us fans and i think we know the difference between those mm-hmm. two things and you know it's one of those things that makes you appreciate the craft of 
animation a little bit more, you know, because uh, you know we were joking earlier in the in the show that you know, uh, you know, Public Enemy number one as far as you know, uh, as far as anime is concerned, and you know I I can you know rant on about you know how much I dislike certain kinds of anime for sure, but you know when you're when you have a film like this where you know you can see the craft involved with it, it just gives you this appreciation of it of all the hard work and you know in the case of japanese animators have the low pay involved with you know such a production so you know i would say you know kudos to them for um for choosing this direction for the film and you know i think overall this is the best of the three in the in the saga and again maybe i should apologize to Oshi for that since <laughs> well he wrote the film at least so you know that's he he definitely gets credit for that. Uh, I'm sure he probably would have loved to have directed it, as I mentioned. Though. Could you see it working in live action? You know, the funny thing is that... And I think that there's been that argument... I've read something about an argument that maybe this should have been live action. I think that it being animated made me feel a little more sympathy for the characters, mm-hmm. you know, believe it or not. Cause you know, animation is supposed to be very distant from live action in that, you know, they are animated characters, you know, and, but one of the strengths of course of Japanese animation is that they in some ways can be more human like mm-hmm. or possess qualities that Unlike with uh, live humans, sometimes you can, uh, how can you say it, animate or illustrate a character in a way that makes the audience more sympathetic toward them. Um, whether it's, you know, little subtle things like features of the face or the eyes or whether it's the actions they perform themselves that makes the audience more sympathetic toward them. I think that's part of the craft of animation is that, uh, you know, you have to sort of psychologically think how you want to portray the character um, to the audience um, such that they get the full effect of that character within the story. Whereas live action, that's up to the actor and sometimes, well, the actor and director, I should say. And sometimes that doesn't translate as well because especially in the case of, as I said, the one example of animation using this idea is that, you know, you can change the way that uh, you draw the character, you know, draw the features of the character, mm-hmm. but live actor, you can't necessarily do that. Or you can do it with, like, things like CG or special effects, but that's a whole different sort of removal from reality um, that a lot of the audience will not sometimes like, especially in the case of CG. So I think that um, that you know I, it would be interesting to see this film as a live action, but I don't think that I would really like it as much, mm. you know. Strangely enough, again, because I think that part of what makes the film good is that you can sympathize with the characters as characters, and you can also see their role within their organizations. Whereas I think live action, I don't think you'd be able to to sympathize or, again, f- get their role within the overall organization of the film as well. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's something that, again, this is all hypothetical, though. You know, so, you know, we're all just sort of 
just sort of going off of what we can imagine from what would happen from a live action film, right? But I, did, did you have a take on that, Kenneth? Uh, I'm, um, you know Sleazy what, I'm... Sleazy K, whatever your name yeah, is. Yeah, it's, Ken, it's <laughs> Kenny B for this show. You'll keep Sleazy K out of it. He's, uh, he's a different character, of course. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, it's... Uh, I, you know, with the right skill, of course, this could have worked in uh, in live action because it's uh, it's it's very it, it has large scale set pieces, yeah, and but it's scaled down too. So I mean, uh, the, the the sequences where characters are just walking and talking and the surroundings right. uh, are very, uh, you know, obviously static and two D and what have you. So, but uh, I'm I'm more excited by the fact that. It, it it became an animated film and tackled the subjects it did in the execution via the execution that uh, that, that is present. I it's a strong case for animation and it's been a, obviously animation has been argued to be very strong as uh, you know throughout uh, the decades as uh, to tell serious stories to tell real stories uh, humane stories and what have you and not just supernatural stories Jinro is not like the first Japanese anime that came out and said look at this serious movie that we animated it's never been like this before so I mean I you know I wouldn't be opposed to it but I I think it works splendidly by being animation and it is that you I don't know of course you see it as an animated film all the time but you don't you, you you don't linger on that fact. You just see it for the story, which is well told and all that. So, so I mean, I'm I'm uh, I, I'm glad it's animated. Definitely, um, it's not a waste of uh, of of uh, <laughs> you know of animation talent in that regard. Like it was uh, redundant to do it in animation or what have you. It's uh, it works perfectly in that regard. And uh, and, and the whole Kebera saga has been you know on on the brink of uh, being animated anyway uh, throughout the two uh, movies. So. Now it happened, but not in the way you, not in that like surreal, odd way you might have thought. And and I'm glad it's uh, again. If you want to track Oshi as a as a director who has a learning curve, obviously we know he kind of has, and hopefully he could easily maybe decide for himself that I'm gonna write something. I'm gonna write it like. Uh, I'm gonna write it straight. I'm gonna write it so to say conventional compared to my other uh, my other material in this saga. This is me treating it with uh, a gloom and a uh, and a, and and an aura of reality. And, right. and I'm hoping that came from him quite a bit. I'm saying that because I don't know. Um, but I haven't read any fact that you know he turned in his script. It was. Uh, totally surreal and odd and then someone came and uh, retooled it uh, I've, I've not seen any evidence towards that fact so, uh, so, so you gotta credit Oshie I think a whole lot for choosing this path and, right. and, and the whole saga as we've also said it allows for different paths mm-hmm. including odd and surreal ones and serious and straight ones and felt ones and, 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 and this is certainly I mean I um, I, I like the movie overall very, very much. There are sections that I find a little bit hard to follow that I need. Uh, but, but again, it's just me not being able to absorb um, certain information as easy as others. Uh, in particular, the political interplay and the interplay between the various uh, police forces and what have you. Um, and 
and it's not as emotional as one character feels towards the end but i think it's a very very good uh, thriller really uh, emotional political thriller if you will and uh, i mean it's very uniquely Jap- japan connected to japan as we said with uh, its parallels to political turmoil and uh, and and i'm um, the in in one way it's nothing there's nothing new in storytelling in cinema about social unrest leading to need for maintaining control so that there's no rebellions rebellion of course that that's a familiar story arc therefore i think it's very easy for new viewers to to sit down with this movie and take it in you know what i mean because uh, in a way it's it feels familiar it feels kind of conventional but it, but at the same time it's not cliched obviously not cliched at all well, what makes it less cliched is, uh, it, it's kind of strange to say because this story trope is actually what uh, is actually somewhat of a cliched one in itself, is that there is a, a love story going on, you know, behind all this between uh, Fuse and the um, so-called sister of the suicide bomber. Um, I forget her name, Kay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So and that's kind of what propels the story along through the, for the most part. And you know, it, it's not. I mean, again, this is something. This is a trope that is not anything new. It's you know, it's one of those things like you know when love sprouts on the battlefield, that kind of thing, that mm-hmm. kind of theme. You know, or you know, an even probably more specific theme in certain ways. You could say that it's very much a, a echo of uh, Romeo and Juliet, right? Mm-hmm. You know, star-crossed lovers. You know, the, in this case. In the case of Romeo and Juliet, they're from two different, um, you know, rival families. In the case of Jinro, they're from two rival factions of society, you know. So what did you think of the romance story? Because, uh, as I said, uh, you know, since it propels the main film along, I, I thought it was actually really good. Yeah, I, I do like it because it's the, the focus on his need for uh, after hesitating to kill the suicide bomber who then uh, uh, blows up herself in in the sewer you know uh, it, it it's this you know journey of someone who just wants to find out you know what happened what was the background of this you know he can't shrug it off you know he's not numb in in that regard after such a personal hit you know breaking under pressure he needs to go on that journey i i i was totally on board with that that personal journey that is also not uh you know it's outside of the protocol obviously because uh so 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 the logical that the 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 paths it takes into the romance i think is very affecting because k is uh but both kind of want to it's fair to say that both kind of want to break free and pursue you know pursue happiness essentially well basically what they're both searching for in the end is humanity i mean their yeah. own humanity you know i mean and i know that your um your art film radar is starting to beep a little bit here Kent. so don't, sorry about don't, that don't worry about that <laughs> <laughs> but uh so fuse is a member of the kerberos uh cops and then when he runs into this suicide bomber, whose uh, name we never get to know, if I remember correctly. No, no, she's just uh, a, a girl in a red cape as well. So they set right. up the vault caption angle uh, quite early right. as well. Right, the little red riding hood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, at that point, 
you know, the part of these Kerberos cops having this suit, you know, as we mentioned before, it's this armor suit along with this, like, gas mask and red goggle contraption that they have to wear on their face, is that it's removing any signs of humanity from them. I mean, if you look at them, you know, as I've mentioned in the earlier episode, so there's this PlayStation 3 that evokes the exact same image of these, you know, red goggles and this heavy armor uh, by the name of uh, Killzone. And when you look at a person in this full getup, you know, it looks like basically a robot. So it's meant to evoke that this is not a human, this is a killing machine, essentially. And when, so go back to Fusei, you know, when he meets up with this suicide bomber, you know, he momentarily sort of takes off the mask because he kind of realizes, and he asks her kind of like, it, you know, she's reaching for the um, the cord. It's like a rip cord that basically, you know, sets off that bomb that she's carrying. Mm-hmm. You know, he asks her why, you know, and the why is not why are you going to do that? It's more like, why are we doing this? You know, it's like, what does it all mean? Mm -hmm. You know, we are just part of this whole, these two organizations that are basically butting heads, these so-called terrorists or, you know, revolutionaries or rebels, whatever you want to call them. And then there's the authority and or the fascists or the police you know whatever you want to call them you know what what does it all mean you know how how does this achieve anything you know mm-hmm. and i think this is what plagues uh fusei throughout the whole movie you know he becomes you know you might look at him he he becomes a very emotionless person throughout the film mm-hmm. well he's kind of i think he's described as always been that way but I think that um, whereas, you know, previously you might have suspected he was emotionless because of some you know, reason, like who knows, like maybe came from a bad family. There's no real background on the character. But I think after this incident, we can pretty much guess that he is still searching for that why, mm-hmm. you know, throughout the film. And when he meets this person, uh, Kay, who says that, you know, she's a sister of the suicide bomber you know we find out some other information later of course um but he he knows that that she's possibly the key to that door that'll help him figure out why you know mm-hmm. and i think that and you know again i don't want to go into spoiler territories because you you will know what i'm talking about kenneth maybe and then of course i you know, I know, and anyone who's watched the film will know, we find out, you know, later that that is a door that maybe can't be opened mm-hmm. because we are, after all, humans, you know, and humans, you know, as much as, you know, hu- humans, we try to find, you know, these good humane things about ourselves and about other people that, you know, we also have these bad qualities and these qualities of things like conformity and believing in something that is not right just because it's more convenient for us and more Mm -hmm. comfortable for us to do so, right? I mean, look at, I think, you know, I think this this film even to a certain degree parallels what's happening in Japan now. I mean, over in, um, uh, over where, you know, the, there was an earthquake, of course, uh, just a year ago, and, 
you know, there was a big uh, nuclear meltdown, you know, and the and all that, right? Um, so those power plants were recently just okayed to be restarted again. So the prime minister of Japan basically got the word that, you know, it was so-called safe to to start operations with those power plants again. And just yesterday, uh, we're recording this on July 1st, so that's June 30th, there were giant, uh, pretty big protests in many of the major cities of Japan, so Tokyo and, of course, the area that in which the power plant is being reopened. It's called Oi, if I remember correctly. Mm-hmm. And other areas of Japan, there's these protests going on. And I kind of feel that this film, in some ways, is... You know, there's some verisimilitude between what's happening in real life now and this film because at one at some point, you know, it becomes this idea that, you know, it's the organization, it's the authority, you know, government versus the people, you know. Mm-hmm. And at some point you have to sort of think to yourself, I think, uh, you know, individuals within these two organizations will have to think to themselves what is this all achieving? What does it all mean? You know, right now, you know, there's just a lot of anger. You know, everyone knows that, you know, you know, we don't want these power plants to be opened. You know, we don't want this U S Japan joint treaty. That's what's in the film, right. Or Mm -hmm. what happened in real life in the fifties. Right. But at a certain point you have to really sort of think to yourself, you know, not so much like I, I shouldn't be angry about this, but there has to be a, a reasonable method of figuring out a solution to these problems. And I think that's what Fuse is feeling in the film. Mm-hmm. It's like he knows that he has the authority to wipe out anyone who goes against what he or the government says, right? Mm-hmm. But I think he understands to a degree that there's this power and it's such a great power that what is the purpose of wielding it when it doesn't really bring about any kind of humane solutions to things? Yeah. So, yeah, that that's kind of how I feel what's going on with this, this, this movie, you know, um, it's not just, you know, um, I mean, of course there's plenty of action involved with it in mystery and in, intrigue, but you know, at the core of it is this search, as you said, like a quest or a hunt for something that maybe to, these characters very elusive you know it's not mm-hmm. something they'll be able to get uh, yeah and, and it is what you take away from the film uh, that that whole personal journey uh, definitely uh, definitely what sticks what sticks with me uh, every time i watch it especially knowing the final uh, resolution of the of the story it um, without spoiling it i can say this much it, it's a bit uncomfortable watching the movie when you know it all you know what i mean Right. And and it doesn't surprise me that, you, you know, you mentioned that Oshi, as well as Miyazaki and Takahata, you know, three very famous animators, were part of the resistance movement, the resistance movement against the U.S.-Japan Security Treaty. Because I think that, you know, he is probably channeling himself, as well mm-hmm. as his, you know, his comrades or his friends, through Fusei, you know, and to a degree through Kei as well. Because, again, you know, they're trying to figure it all out. You know, what's, what does this all mean exactly? You yeah. Know? And, and, and they, it, those sequences with those two walking 
on for you know during daytime the streets are a bit quiet and everybody are going about their business uh, and mm-hmm. uh, but but they are operating kind of outside of the worldly troubles for a while they are they are they allow themselves to and they are allowed to they aren't pulled in just as right. soon as they try to you know they, they have lots of time uh with each other you know and even uh fuse even sneaks out of the base uh one uh one night to uh you know, it, it's not. He, he's bound by that duty, kind of, uh, to that to that journey. You know, nothing else kind of matters, uh, which right. is uh, very alluring. Uh, and there's uh, uh, there, there's some visual touches here that the dream sequences, uh, or rather, the hallucinations, rather, that mm-hmm. uh, reminds Fusi of of that event in the zoo where. Well, yeah, uh, they're essentially the flashbacks. Yeah, right. exactly, and uh, and the way uh, Okiora talking to the director again uh, uh, inserts wolves every now and again in within these sequences that are obviously pure fantasy despite being flashbacks as well I think it was it's very the the, the insertion of wolves is very uh, very striking right. I think right uh, well d- well during uh, Stray Dog you know I was talking about Oshii's handling of story elements in a in a almost like too dense of a manner you know mm-hmm. there's there's no room for the characters to breathe, I think, at times, you know. But I think this is a good example of a film that, you know, you can have these story, these dense story elements, but you can also let your characters breathe a little, you know, mm-hmm. and, you know, do things that um, are more, you know, human or real or regular. You know, like you said, just going out together, being together, going to the park, you know, they kind of have a few dates that are on screen, yeah. you know. And, you know, there's no talking about, you know, stray dogs or or angel eggs or anything like this, you know, that might evoke, you know, um, the theme of the film. It's just a sort of like it just allows the audience to sort of like, you know, breathe a little bit as well as the characters, too, you know, which is why I, I think this is probably easily the best film of the entire uh, series. And, and despite certain characters, again, without spoiling anything, uh, using the symbolism of wolves and uh, mm-hmm. animals in general, that doesn't feel as explicit as in. I talked about it in my stray dog review that it's it's very on the nose kind of. Mm-hmm. You know, no, just because they are talking about it doesn't mean that they go down on all fours, right. <laughs> you know, and. Uh, this movie doesn't turn animated despite being an animation in, in that regard, you know. It's well, the, a, right. Well, the fact that he can put them in sort of these uh, sort of dreamlike flashbacks kind of makes it a little easier to swallow, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I mean, definitely. But I, I think that um, to, if I look at the title of the film, though, I think he was sort of maybe a little heavy, heavy-handed because Jinro, Jin, Jinro actually means uh, is to... Uh, Chinese or kanji characters, and together means human wolf. So, <laughs> so I think maybe in that case he was being a little heavy-handed. And of course, there's the connection with the again with the um, Little Red Riding Hood story. The um... well, well, being heavy-handed isn't obviously uh, doomed for failure every time. Oh, of course, I mean, not. Uh, that's why it's so encouraging to see that whether it's all due to the fact that he has someone else kind of directing this and in getting a chance to take a step back and right. Matter, it, well, and matter it's, out and I mean it, it, it kind of uh, it, it, it starts to 
works. I mean, I encourage him to be heavy-handed just to see if it works from project to project. You know what right. I mean? It's a title of a film, so you can just shrug that off pretty yeah, easily. Yeah, absolutely. Well, 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 the dialogue in the film uh, overall, really, that, that happens every now and again. Oh, here we go. Here's the animal talk. But, uh, but it's so smoothly done here. Right. I, I never had any problems with it because I, I felt way before it started to uh, bring in animal symbolism, I, I, I felt so uh, that I was in a shorthand regardless. So uh, it was just right. easy to flow with uh, whatever it presented. The only thing I had trouble with, again, is, uh, and, and this is just me uh, not not um, not being able to absorb all the intricacies of the uh, relationships between the uh, between the different security forces and the police force. I, I found that to be a bit, uh, essentially the political uh, the political mm-hmm. part of the movie. I found that to be a little bit hard to follow. That's why I actually had the Wikipedia uh, from beginning to end plot summary mm-hmm. beside me just to make sure I follow. But I I stress listeners that I can't say that's a knock on the film. I just know that I have trouble absorbing certain things and politics is actually one such thing the movie isn't complex for the sake of being complex it's just uh, it's a movie you definitely need to uh, focus on and, uh, and 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 read if you will right. uh, and, and intensely as well right yeah it's it's not too complex i mean definitely it's not on the level of let's say uh, jackie chan's project a which is you know more has that same sort of you know merging of two different uh, militaries together that kind of thing, and I only bring up Project Eight because you know we we reviewed that on the um, the V Cinema podcast fairly mm-hmm. recently. But um, I, I think the only thing you have to really know uh, in in Jinro, even though there is a lot, there is there are scenes that are dedicated toward this sort of merging of forces, is that we have two particular governmental forces that are basically being threatened to be merged and. This, again, this is sort of a parallel to what happened in, in Japan with this Japan with the um, National Police Force becoming the Japanese Self-Defense Force mm-hmm. eventually. But the sort of merging again of these two organizations together and the fact that because of this merging, a sort of splinter group from the um, from the Kerberos Corp that uh, that Fusei belongs to has evolved basically to sort of because they basically disagree with um, with the politics of the maneuver, mm-hmm. so that that's basically all you have to really know. But yeah. uh, it's also unfortunately a very instrumental part of the film if you don't somehow get the intricacies, as Kenneth said. But I think that if you get the basics, that's yeah, we, which is what I definitely did. It was not like the final resolution was a complete mystery to me. What the hell right. just happened? It's all abstract, mm. you know. And uh, and as I said at the beginning of my review, I, I, there's a very, there's an emotional breakdown via a character towards the very end, and and I, I, I didn't feel that the movie hit me in an emotional way. Mm-hmm. Uh, that hard, you know. But having said that, it's very, very, very rewarding, and uh, in particular via via Fuse and the res- and the final resolution is very, very effective, and uh, and, and and it's right. a gloomy, dark film that that you can say from that you know from the beginning, and you know all throughout that it's uh, it, there, there's not going to be any any tacked on tacked on, you know wacky cartoony side to this one or any tacked right. on you know uh 
cliched romantic subplot you know everything works uh, works together and flows well into right. each other and even even the i mean i mean i think i heard you say this i think your your very pos- your, your attitude towards um inserting the uh, the story of uh, Little Red Riding Hood to parallel the events of the uh, uh, events in the story. You, it seems like you were very much behind that. Yeah, I was actually very uh, surprised that they were able to incorporate that so well into the film. Um, I, you know, again, it's it's part of your everyone's threshold. How successful, you know, it's like your mileage may vary. Okay, but as I said, you know, everyone has their own threshold to how how much you know how much art you can take in, in a mm. film or how much anything you can take really um and i think some people might roll their eyes a little bit i could imagine that uh in certain parts of the film but i, I thought it was very well done and oh, yeah. Definitely. especially the fact that there's no explicit parallels to any characters in the film with the characters from red riding hood because mm-hmm. there's an ambiguity as to who is Little Red Riding Hood, and who is the wolf, and who's the grandmother, and all that yeah. stuff. You know, there are different interpretations. So that that's what I think really makes it successful. And that um, particular mm-hmm. uh, text, uh, as written, inter- uh, is a very um, you know the story has always been dark, but it's written in such a originally. Uh, it's not by Oshii, but originally in such a graphic way, and I mean it's a very dark and gory. Right, story, yeah, there's, yeah. there's cannibalism involved. Exactly. And, so, I mean, it, it kind of puts you on the edge of your seat as well when you are starting to see the parallels in the movie as well. Right. And by the way, I wanted to mention, uh, you, uh, you were just talking about the ending of the film being really sad. You know, I, I think it, the ending is... I also think the ending is sad, um, but I think it's not sad in the way that many audience members may feel it's sad. Mm-hmm. Because and and I don't know maybe you want to edit this out, Kent. I'm not I'm not gonna I'm gonna try to be pretty vague, but mm-hmm. we'll just say that one character is able to move on. Yep. I don't know if that's a spoil. Yeah, it, it, it's vague enough, in my opinion. So go ahead. Okay. <laughs> okay, and I felt more sad for that character. Mm-hmm. You know, I think in traditional narrative, you would feel sorry for the other character. Mm-hmm. But I think that the character who moves on is the one who, um, who, who. I don't. I wouldn't say you should feel sad, sorry, or sad for, but you should feel sorry or sad that that's that that that's the only thing he can do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like he's trapped. He or and, she. And. Uh... <laughs> perfect uh, but but also uh, what what i wanted to say is that it's pretty clear that this movie isn't going to be like the final battle and therefore the fight the, you know that everything within the Kerberos saga is going to be solved via Jin road there's too sure. much conflict here which um which is something that um uh, you know it, it's it's not a lazy way out to to right. To be uh, gloomy in that regard, that uh, there will be no solution, or maybe there will, uh, n- you know, in Oshi's mind, there will never be a solution. There will be constant conflict throughout the decades, uh, 
in in his in his mind when developing this story, which is um, not uh, n- not uh, too intense darkness or too intense gloom, in my opinion. It, it's actually mm-hmm. it, it is what it is. It makes you sad, but it's not uh, it's not too extreme. Well, and if you take it to the next step and believe that you know the series is a parallel to things that are happening in real life. I mean, you know, the conflict will never end, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so technically, exactly. this series can go on forever if, you know, enough thematic elements of it, you know, can be drawn from uh, what's happening in real life. Mm. Yeah, and and ultimately, I think it, it is the strongest um, out of the feature, feature movies that we've uh, seen uh, connected to the Kerbera saga. I mean, this shows the most... Um, Potential, I think uh, this it's possibly the most well, possibly I think it is the most mainstream out of the three movies. But that's not saying this is easy viewing, and mm-hmm. and uh, I mean it it uh, requires uh, it requires uh, a little little mental dedication, emotional right. dedication. It's not it's not a violent anime uh, just for the violence sake. I mean there are sequences where yeah you know they use their big ass guns and there's some pretty bloody sequences but it's right. not uh, it's not the selling point of the movie and hopefully no uh, I haven't seen the US trailer for this it's on the DVD that I have hopefully they uh, cut a trailer that uh, is fair to the movie rather than playing up the action I just pray to god they didn't just you know the latest from Japan <laughs> it's quirky <laughs> No, but uh, one thing I wanted to say is that, yeah, at least with all the films that we've seen so far with the Oshi series, I think easily the most user-friendly so far, again, is um, mm-hmm. is Pat Labor. And then... Oh, yeah. But I think that this one would probably rank with, like... I mean, even though, again, it is thematically dense, um, I think it could still rank as being, like, a number two, I think, out of all mm-hmm. of them. Maybe, uh, maybe Stray Dog would be number two. I'm not too sure, mm-hmm. you know. Um, just because it's a little, but again, you know, since that Stray Dog is a little more, um, has more stylistic aspirations, I, I think that probably I would go with, uh, with this one, um, this one being, um, this one being Jinro uh, as being like the, the second most, uh, accessible films that we've seen so far for a general audience. And as a final note, just because I was looking at, uh, I didn't think there would be a uh, good uh, voice cast list for for this, but but there is. And uh, not only have they mm-hmm. modeled Fusei after after Yoshikatsu Fujiki's character in Stray Dog, he is actually voiced by him as well. Uh, so they, uh, it's uh, uh, yeah, he's a voice actor, so they could they did bring him in for this one as well. So. Um, right. Uh, so there you go, and uh, not that it's easy to uh, connect that as soon as you hear his voice. Ah, <laughs> yeah. You know, it maybe maybe Shiba would be more easy to connect to that as well <laughs> because Shiba is so out there usually with uh, uh, right. in in Red Spectacle and Stray Dog. Uh, always go, no, not always, but often going into a into a into a high pitch of some sort, you know. Uh, so. Uh, but, yeah, but he's fun. I mean, I, I, I I'm not sure he, they, these two have done that many live movies and maybe only the Oshi movies but uh, mm-hmm. I like uh, Shigeru uh, Sh- oh, well he's in Talking Head I know Sh- Shigeru Shiba is in Talking Head as well and essentially still still with the glasses I mean that's that's the <laughs> that, that's how you recognize him. Mean, his trademark he, yeah exactly I, th- I think he plays the director in Talking Head which was this odd and surreal uh, uh, 
I don't know how to explain it. It's about a movie set where a lot of people die. There's zombies and there's uh, there. It looks almost in part uh, like they, they strip down sets so much that it's a notch or two. Uh, all, almost like Dogville in that regard, but they do have more props than Dogville. But they 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 have scenes where there's nothing there where they pretend that there is a whole set there and, uh, and a lot of props there. But uh, mm. uh, I remember sounds it, like one to skip. <laughs> it it uh, yeah, I mean if you're curious to watch it, if you can find it, sure. But uh, not uh, not the center. It was kind of weird and uh, and could be argued to be self-indulgent. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's in the uh, US box set uh, at any rate, together with the Red Spectacle Stray Dog and the Stray Dog soundtrack. So, And uh, Gene Rowe is, uh, has been available on US DVD, but there, there, there is also by now pretty excellent looking Blu-ray, uh, at least one excellent looking Blu-ray out of Japan. Uh, so um, uh, that you probably expensive though. But uh, if you if you were that uh, if the Blu-ray is good or not, uh, then I can assure you that it's a very very good looking presentation. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you see, uh, I know the screen cap I saw was like one of the scenes where Fusa and K are walking there, walking across a bridge, and uh, and the background elements just are, you know, you see all the tiny 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 background mm-hmm. elements, you know, perfectly. So mm-hmm. all the two, all the traditional animated elements so yeah. uh but um that's uh, that's pretty much it i have no other notes and uh you know without we, we won't set any plans now but uh, we are going to make an attempt to uh to elongate uh, the carabaros uh, coverage i guess <laughs> by by trying to find <laughs> if the uh the amazing lives of the fast food grifters is out there and subtitled obviously i would need subtitles you would probably do uh quite well without subtitles uh, john yeah it depends though yeah <laughs> uh, but we'll see. But anyway, this is uh, us done for uh, for this episode. So uh, some contact information again, and then we'll sign off. So this has been Japan on Fire on the Podcast on Fire Network website and email podcastonfire.com podcastonfire at googlemail.com The old forum is still there for those who have registered before podcastonfire.com forward slash forum as well as the uh, members-only archive of uh, bonus stuff, but we also post bonus episodes nowadays on the website, and that stuff, uh, episodes that are only available on the website, not on iTunes or Stitcher. And we have two endeavors on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Network is our page, and uh, we also have the main discussion going, going on in this, the discussion group that you can reach by searching Podcast on Fire Network in the Facebook search box. And follow us on Twitter as well, twitter.com forward slash podcast on fire. And uh, I do my writing and video reviewing on sogoodreviews.com and sleazykvideo.com. And follow me on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash sogoodreviews. And uh, iTunes is the place where you can subscribe to the podcast on fire network. And if you like the show, leave a rating and comment. And if you don't want to download them to your devices, then you can stream them via Stitcher. Go to stitcher.com to download the application to your computer or download it from your respective app stores for the iPhone, if, uh, as an example. And what is to say about the cinema at this stage? Well, again, um, <laughs> again, you can check out our blog at vcinemashow.com. Uh, our podcast is also available for download there if you want to do it directly. Um, if you are an iTunes user, uh, we are, of course, on iTunes as well as Stitcher and Slapdash Radio. Um, 
And let's see if you want to contact us somehow of vcinema at variedcelluloid.net or vcinema at yahoo.com. We're on Facebook, Google+, um, Twitter as at vcinemashow, S-H-O-W. Search us out on those other uh, social networks. And uh, get in touch with us, check our stuff, rate us, review us, and, of course, enjoy. Alrighty, and uh, that's us. So, again, John, thank you very much. This is uh, this is series I greatly enjoy, and I enjoy having these chats with you. And um, yeah, thank you. So uh, we'll see you next time uh, with whatever we come up with. Maybe if we can't find a fast food grip this movie, it's a, if it's a complete dead end, then possibly we're at Ghost in the Shell next time. But uh, we'll we'll keep you posted, listeners. Uh, so, but yeah. uh, this is Japan uh, Five Six Dash Three. So. This is Kennedy signing off. With me was Coffin John. All right, and sayonara, and thank you, everyone.